Oh my god, Ira, I uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do the podcast this week. Well, <laughs> yeah, well I, well, I just came all the way over here, and I've got my you know Yeti microphone. <laughs> I'm I'm ready to go. I so know. What's the problem? I'm so sorry. Well, technical difficulties. Uh, okay. You know, a couple folks came by recently to see my pet rats, which I thought was strange. Um, but I let them hang out with them for the weekend. They seemed really interested, and when they came back, they were. Different. The uh, people were different. What do you mean? Like different people? Well, the rats, the rats off? are people. So oh, the you know rats. how they used to live in a cage? Well, they can just open that bad boy right up now, which I think should have been the first sign of oh. trouble. Um, it's impressive. You know how I used to complain how they were always chewing up all my books? Well, now they're yeah. reading all of my books. Holy crap! Yeah, like there's rat size bookmarks and. All of these books. Is this James Joyce? They're, are they reading they, this? Yeah, they are both fastidious and very tasteful. Uh, I didn't even know yeah. I had a copy of that. Um, and they always used to be chewing up all my computer cables, but now they are using up all of my internet. Wow, um, yeah. They've, la- they've rolled up a bunch of ethernet cables and stacked them really neatly in the corner. They are. They just discovered Netflix. Uh, so oh I just, yeah, they've taken up all my screens. They're simul watching all of these different well, things. I just, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to rewatch the movie in time to get my notes together. Yeah, we were supposed to watch Secret of Nim, the uh, <sighs> Don Bluth classic. But you know, yeah, I see all the accounts are are being used all the devices or yeah which is wild because i only got two of them so i don't know how they're doing this but uh and they get real mad when i try to step to them so oh yeah and they have those little yellow angry teeth too well luckily i i mean i feel like we've both seen secret of nim so many times we can kind of just yeah go for yeah it. i think you know i don't know what i'm gonna do about this problem but in the meantime we can just kind of spin some of this right off the dome, no problem. Okay, cool. Let me just uh, plug my mic into this the, this really old computer that the rats don't seem interested. I think this is like a gateway laptop. Yeah, they they here. actually built that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, maybe I can put Audacity on it and we can just, you know, kind of run it really simply here. All right. Welcome to Cartoon Feelings. Yeah, it's my birthday. I heard it's a huge day. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's my first birthday, so that's a massive deal. Wow. Yeah. You still barely don't even know anything about the world yet, but I, you're getting there. Right. And of course, we're we're talking about the release date of this movie, July 2nd, 1982, and not the actual day we're recording on, correct? True, which God only knows. No one knows what day it is anymore. No, it's all just one puddle of goo, I guess. Yeah, we stopped recording that. But July, <laughs> July second, nineteen eighty-two, is uh, set in stone is a great day for me and uh, my mom. We were really close at the time, spending a lot of time together, and I believe she was even sneaking me into movies. So, a uh, cool mom. Yeah, she's pretty cool. I, she always likes to say she snuck me into Empire Strikes Back when I was a tiny baby in that uh, in that first year. But she might just say that to make me feel like I was, you know, I was there. 
but I don't know if she really did. Well, we'll never know, but you can carry that with you. Yeah. Yeah. We truly will never know because I think even in her brain, it's true, whether it is or yeah. not. <laughs> the, the mythology <laughs> storytelling. Right. So 1982, the, usually we focus in a little more on maybe the release date, but I'm not sure how many times we're going to get to come back to 1982. So I think this is just a giant year. And I just want to kind of run through what was in the theater's during this whole year, because maybe this is my favorite year overall of movies, possibly. Yeah. I quickly want to say, too, before you start rattling them off, this is wild. I never realized it until basically this moment. Mm -hmm. But a handful of these movies are like formative movies for me. And so I was born in 1990. So I wasn't even thought of. Nobody cared about what Kaylin was up to at this time because I wasn't. Uh, and it's really wild to me that, like, the same situation, some of these movies are, like, a core part of who I am. Right. It's something Nuts. in the air at the time, right? It's it's the type – it's just the type of stuff people were making really connected with us, whether – because, I mean, yeah, I was born, but I it wasn't till like, 10 years later that I was even taking this stuff in in a, a real meaningful way where I was deciding these were, like, my identity. But um, let's go through some of them. And uh, you can – lightning round rate them on a (laughs) one to five stars et the extraterrestrial i can't rate it because i it was too scary for me as a kid and i've never watched it again as an adult which is embarrassing but like i found et very horrifying so that's the one i'm like no connection way too scary but that's the thing i i dub this year the year of the nightmare family movie i think yeah because everything on this list is scary as hell but theoretically a kid should be able to watch it at the time. <laughs> so yeah, e- E.T.'s right in there for sure. I need to rewatch that. Ugh, uh, so creepy. Yeah, we can pause while you go rewatch it. Yeah, if you guys just hang out here <laughs> for a minute. Bye. Bye. See ya. Okay, we're back. Uh, Plague Dogs, <laughs> maybe not uh, a blockbuster hit, but <laughs> an animated feature. So yeah. And I've only seen that movie maybe once or twice, actually. So terrifying. I'm sure we'll set aside some time at some point to get into that one. Yes, I really want to. Very haunting. Get to know that one. Yes, I've I've seen it two or three times. And yes, that's the only feeling I have is that it's Yeah, like a gut, like a sickness in your gut. And not even, not in a bad way, honestly. I mean, yes, but it's not like a disrespect to the movie. It's just like, it's a powerful It's got a truth to it that's very unsettling, I think, maybe. It it might be getting at something that we don't want to think about. Anyway, we won't think about it now. Uh, And on to fantasy, like The Last Unicorn, which, you know, I think that's a classic for me. I can't stress enough, yeah, how formative that movie was in our household. Yeah, Even my sister liked it more than me in a way, but... I mean, that movie's seared into the cracks and crevices of my brain, just irrevocably. We had like it taped on like an old VHS tape with a movie that I wonder if it's from this year. I don't know if you've heard of it. Have you ever seen Flight of Dragons? No. We need to talk about this. I No one has ever seen this that I've talked to. And yes, it is a 1982 movie. It's a Rankin and Bass movie about dragons. It has... um, James Earl Jones is a voice in it. Wow. It's totally bizarre and totally worth watching. And like, 
that was kind of a double feature in our, our household. A lot was The Last Unicorn and Flight of Dragons. It was just all fantasy all the time. <laughs> 1982. Yeah, it's yeah, just fan. This is like peak fantasy because it's it's right on the line of becoming just general kids fodder. Because after this, you get like He Man and all the the like Mattel kid stuff. But at this point, it's still kind of eluding just uh, the mainstream to me at least even though these are mainstream things i guess but there there's something magical to them where they they don't become toys right away you know like these are there's a lot of them are based on books or they're rooted in these like really interesting kind of adult themes like uh the dark crystal that's another one for me there's like a lot plot wise it's kind of weird but there's a lot going on in there that's for adults to think about and it's trying to like inspire kids you know yeah, I love The Dark Crystal. I love it so much. And it's – I did not know that both of these movies came out in the same year. But it's funny because we didn't own copies of Rats of Nim or The Dark Crystal. But when I was young, we lived in Alexandria, Virginia. We had a relative that lived in Maryland. So when we drive to Maryland to see him, he had those movies and we watched them together. Well, no, like our uncle wasn't there. It would be like my mom and my dad, whatever, like hanging out the adults. And me and my sister would get into his VHSs and we'd watch The Dark Crystal and we'd watch Rats of Nip countless times. And it's so, it's really interesting. Like those are associated together very strongly to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like, we were just drawn to them as kids. And it's really strange because Dark Crystal, like, yeah, it's it has a childish energy to it, but it's very... The themes aren't like kid theme. And in a way, that movie's kind of boring. It's not yeah. to me, really, but it's very slow. Right. So it doesn't scream like fun for the whole family. Like it's, a, I think, yeah, I guess the through line for all of these movies is that they're really just like super weird in a lot of ways, not just weird in like watching them, but it's like, why do these exist? I'm so happy they exist, but like they're so strange. Yeah, they're, they they all lock you in with uh, either an interesting artifact. Like Dark Crystal has the crystal, purple, purple crystal in that one. Rats of Nim has the red amulet. And these are, you're just drawn to them as a kid because they're cool, like saturated color, shiny things. And then when you get in there, then the movie like seems to, both of them, I think, are trying to teach you something about how to be part of the world and maybe the slow pace of dark crystal is that that kind of mr rogers if we slow down you understand what we're trying to tell you like to me yeah i put those sort of things together like jim henson definitely wants to kind of convey something to you with like this movie and fraggle rocks kind of the same way um so maybe that's it maybe that's like the pacing thing and just one really quick fun fact about Dark Crystal is the first live action movie to have no people in it on screen at any point. Yeah. Which is just kind people. of interesting to me. <laughs> 100% live action, not a single human flesh part visible at any time. Great film. Yeah. Highly recommend it. It's like a better version of the uh, James Cameron or, you know, like the idea like everything's going to be in the computer. We won't even need actors or, you know, these directors that kind of pursue the technology. Like Jim Henson was doing that, but- with puppets, so it's just way more interesting. <laughs> yeah, me. I love that the Dark Crystal is like the logical endpoint of his <laughs> yeah. whole philosophy of like Muppethood, where he's like, you're hiding the people and you're hiding the people and you're making them real. And then in this one, he was like, for real, they're all real. They're all here, <laughs> full body, like creatures running around, no people. It was just like, I respect him as an artist so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's my favorite. I just read like the third book on him that I could find. Yeah. he. You just feel good learning 
his story and his creative process. It's just, it's heartwarming. Uh, I love it. Less heartwarming. We don't have to go through all these, the whole 1982. I think we just kind of hit the main ones that. Well, and these are, these are all the ones that the ones that we've talked about now are the ones that I've for sure seen and have a lot of like connection to, especially in my childhood times. And a lot of the other ones, not so much. Yeah. So just because Rats of Nim, something we can get into is, is this sci-fi? Is it fantasy? Is it both? What, what is it exactly? But there's a, a lot of, um, cool genre stuff going around. So you have like kind of kid-friendly horror, like Poltergeist, which was a PG movie, even though you was watch- it really? Yeah. Because- I didn't see it, but that shocks me to hear. Well, here's why. Because in 1982, there is no PG-13. Like uh, Temple of Doom- oh. Temple of Doom is the first PG-13 movie. And that's because just Spielberg was pushing so hard with this like dark kid stuff that he was doing that- the, they had to come up with another category because parents were just freaking the fuck out. That is wild. So anything before 84 is just R or G or PG or X, I guess. So that's wow. why you get like weird PG stuff. So um, like what? All right. Let's look at some other good sci-fi at the time. We have Blade Runner. Lots of good color classic. in that one. Yeah. Yeah. Great Seen classic. It many All, times. Also another one with like odd kind of like... That's that's got an odd ending. Let's debate it. Anyway, Blade Runner episode setting that aside for now. Yeah, let's see what else. Well, we have uh the Q the Winged Serpent, which is like a cool weird stop motion dragon thing. I don't know this one. Yeah. I've never heard of this. It's more an odd. But I like the sound of it. Yeah, well you mentioned the other drag the uh the, the Flight of Dragons. Yeah, so it's it's Ugh. just dragon season here in eighty two. Bring it back. I think it's time for a revival. And we're doing it right. People who follow me on Twitter know that I'm very passionate that dragons have four legs and not two. Yeah. And this last couple decades of Hollywood bullshit with two-leg dragons, it's not going to fly. No pun intended. <laughs> it's not working for me. Get out of here. Dragons are fake. Stop trying to make them birds. This is you. That's, a, that's wyverns, okay? No one can talk back to me because I'm on a podcast. I have a platform now. <laughs> yeah, you definitely just built yourself a little soapbox there out of... <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I was recently Dragon ranting modes. to somebody about this, and I held up Draco from Dragonheart, mm-hmm. voiced by the iconic Sean Connery, as like a pretty excellent conception of dragons, and I stand by it. That's all. Yes. Thus ends Caitlin's Dragon Corner. I'll bring it up again, though, if I have to. Good, so you seriously, don't fuck around. Four <laughs> now, legs. Thanks. I, we gotta we gotta dip into the stuff while we can. I mean, after <laughs> like you know, how many animated movies have all this cool shit in it and around it? So. Mm. I mean, actually, kind of a lot, maybe. <laughs> a few of them. It's just that a hard. Is. It's a hard turn from uh, Spider Verse last week into this world. <laughs> so I think we're just like settling in. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> set the tone. It's gonna get weird in here. Let, let's uh, let's get to know this movie a little bit. That sounds good. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> the secret of Nim. You may not have realized from our earlier discussion, it was released in the year 1982, and it was directed by Don Bluth, I believe, his first feature after his, uh, when he thieved like 14 other animators from Disney and bailed on them and like went to do his own thing. Uh, So his first foray into the great world of directing, 
Uh, wow, is this the tagline? Right before your eyes and beyond your wildest dreams. Boy, does that <laughs> not only set a bar for this movie, but also not tell you anything about the movie? Extremely ambitious and <laughs> like a, a one-two punch, no content, <laughs> but also being like very ambitious. I'm gonna get this tattooed on my back. I think. <laughs> Before your eyes and beyond your wildest dreams. Uh, uh, so the general, the basic synopsis of this movie is that there's this field mouse. Her name's Mrs. Brisby. She is widowed, uh, and she has a very ill child, Jonathan. And among others, she has like three or four kids. I kind of lose track of them. I think four. And uh, she needs to move their family because it's like plow season and they live in the farmer's field and you know he's gonna kill all of them if they don't she can't move him because he's bedridden with his illness with pneumonia so that's kind of the general uh issue at hand here and along her adventures she has a crow friend that helps her out and most importantly most crucially some super intelligent lab rats that have set up kind of an electric wonderland in the farmer's rosebush (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually really cool. That's like one of my favorite sequences in the movie is like how wild it is down there. Yeah, it's perfect. We we all deserve a a chance to visit at some point. Yeah, it's some like Disneyland, I don't know, parade of lights in there. Totally. This this movie is, you know, very indebted to Disney aesthetic and culture in a lot of ways. And um, in fact, the book that I'd like to, you know, we want to talk a little bit before we get too far into the movie. The book, Miss Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of mm. Nim, was brought to the Disney company back in the day, I guess in the 70s, but they deemed it like too dark to do a movie out of it. So Don Bluth must have, I don't know if he brought it to Disney or somebody, or he intersected with it at that point. I think he did. I believe he so? actually okay. pitched it. I had just read something about this recently. Um, but at the very least, he was like passing copies around to people at the studio and being like, isn't this really good? And like, was clearly very into it and people seemed to be into it. And then just the Disney higher ups were like, no. Yeah. And we can, uh, you know, we'll throw a lot of love on this movie, but they were kind of right <laughs> to to reject it. I think like, yeah, it, it doesn't quite fit. It's Disney. certainly not a Disney. There's no Disney vibe. Don Bluth, too. I mean, it makes sense. It feels inevitable that he ended up leaving Disney, although he worked there longer than I thought initially when I was doing some research for this. It's like he worked on a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to say it was like 15 years or something that he was at Disney just based on like the, the work that he'd done there. But like he doesn't fit at Disney. His stuff is a lot weirder, and a lot darker. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of it has to, you know, we've, I, I believe, you, did you read this book again recently? Uh, I didn't have a chance to actually, I started okay. it when we were, talked about doing, I didn't have a chance to finish it. Me neither, um, but I pulled, I pulled some, a little bit of information from it. Cause I, I was like very into this book when I was a kid. It's one of those Newberry books that a teacher just has on the shelf in the classroom. So it was around a lot. I remember seeing it, but I don't remember other kids being like that into it. It might have been a little too old because it's from 71. Yeah, well, like this, I definitely read it when I was younger because I was very into it. As we have talked about, I was very into the Redwall series as a kid, like super into it. And that kind of 
you know, as like a lot of kids and like Disney fans are into that, like, you know, anthro animal, like medieval fantasy story, like genre of which there is so much. No other kids I knew liked it. And I was not cool. So didn't have anyone to talk to about it, really. Yeah, it was a very specific niche that was really great because there's also the Mouse Guard comic book. Do you do you remember any? Did you ever read that? I never did. I'd love to. Honestly, that mm-hmm. is exactly my jam, but I never have. But I like the look of it a lot. Yeah. And it, I guess in some ways, a lot of these stories are kind of grown out of maybe a young interest in this book. Because if you go back before this, I'm trying to think of other interesting animal stories. You have like the Velveteen Rabbit or not. That's not a good example. But I guess you have like Beatrix Potter and her rabbit stories, like these things that are happening outside, like the gays of humans in their own spaces, you know, in the gardens. Um, And if you want to get nitpicky with it, I mean, it goes back to like like the Aesop's fables or whatever. There's so many uses of animals in storytelling, but it's not the same where it was this very specific time of like. The animals in the forest. And we're like Bambi might be a good example, honestly, mm-hmm. a yeah. close example. Although even then, it's like they, these stories started to get into like the animals are wearing clothes and they have swords for some reason. Yeah, they have But more they agency. also live in this world. Like it's a little strange. Yeah, well, they become like vessels for discussion on certain things. So I'm going to go. <laughs> I did a little like, <laughs> I guess, rabbit holing on this, this <laughs> book and because – it's a movie that was important to me, and it was a book that was important to me. And I was trying to put the pieces together of like where this all comes from. So Robert C. O'Brien worked for National Geographic, which probably is just setting the tone for telling stories set in a natural world outside of like the within the realm of humans, but like more playing off of how humans affect the animal world. And he's putting out this book in 1971. So this is the year after Nixon passes the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is basically saying- Thanks, that, Nixon. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was- he Credit his, where credit is due. Yeah, his days. But we won't give him too much credit because I want to point out one of my favorite authors of all time, Rachel Carson, was like a scientific writer and her book, Silent Spring, is the thing they call it. The, the long shadow of Rachel Carson. The EPA is in that shadow of her uh, scientific writing. So when you read her stuff, here's how I'm putting this all together. When you read her stuff, she's like shifting the point of view of what it means to exist as like a human in the natural world. And this is a time when like pesticides and things are unregulated. So she's like, well, if you look at the world from in this way, we're really... Um, I got a good quote from her. I'm going to just jump right to her words because I think this is kind of an environmental story, like at its core, the rats of them. So Rachel Carson says, why should we tolerate a diet of weak poisons, a home in insipid surroundings, a circle of acquaintances who are not quite our enemies, the noise of motors with just enough relief to prevent insanity. Who would want to live in a world which is just not quite fatal? (laughs) Oh, like, that is a good quote. It's fucking, mm. it's like dark and beautiful, just like the rats of Nim. So I, I just feel like Robert C. O'Brien is living in this Rachel Carson era. And this story is him kind of like also reflecting on ecological literacy because it's like a book about literacy and uh, the environment. So I don't know. I'm just, uh, I'm just like jumping to, 
these little rocks in this swamp of <laughs> poison and putting these ideas together. But this is something I, I was just thinking about when I was like digging back into this book for maybe the first time in 15 years. That is interesting, actually, too. And now I'm like regretting that I didn't get a chance to read the book more because the movie, which we we'll definitely talk about, gets really weird with the themes and it sort of becomes difficult to follow. And in a way, I feel like the reason that that movie is successful, or at least like what I like about it, is that like it feels like this wild dream. Yeah. Like there's definitely a plot happening, but it feel the plot feels like tertiary, not even secondary to like what's going on. And you're sort of just carried by the visuals. And it's very weird. Um, but it makes me sort of lose the thread of like, well, what's this movie trying to say? Like, I don't really think about that when I'm watching this movie. But it's interesting. Like, you're you're totally right. Yeah. I want to do a little more on the book because to me, at this point, seeing this movie so many times, what's most interesting is the choices that they're, you know, what they're picking and choosing from the book and then what they bring to it and how that just sort of changes a lot of what the story is about. So as a, a Newberry book, it it was praised for this kind of bigger message of, you know, a kid's book being about themes of science, the uh, nature of intelligence, and the human destruction of the environment. And the rats are the parable for like scientific progress and innovation. And with great power comes great responsibility type of stuff, clearly stolen from Spider-Man. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds so familiar. <laughs> I can't place it. And then I just got one last quote that's going to tie this all together. And it's by the character Jenner from the book, who's kind of our antagonist. So he says, he says this one line, by teaching us how to read, they taught us how to get away. And then he says this other thing. The real point is this. We don't know where to go because we don't know what we are. Do you want to go back to living in a sewer pipe and eating other people's garbage? Because that's what rats do. But the fact is, we aren't rats anymore. We are something Dr. Schultz has made, something new. So to me, it, it makes it feel like this book is saying, now that humans have this knowledge and like a, this deeper understanding of their environment, they can, they're burdened with like the need to make changes the need to make changes, which uh, I don't know, that just sort of like speaks to the world right now too. It's like, it's time to like read up on shit and get informed and make some choices, people. Yeah, I want, uh, I don't even, I don't have a coherent point to make about this, but it's something I'll bring up. <laughs> Throwing a lot at, at you. <laughs> yeah, and again, like, I feel like there's more richness to it in the book that sort of becomes like aesthetic in the movie. And so it doesn't really go anywhere. But there are times when we are spent when we're hanging out in the rosebush with the rat people, where I'm thinking stuff like that. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, like the problems that they're debating, um, that they seem to feel guilty for stealing electricity, and they want to go be self sufficient. Stuff like that is very interesting to me. And they just have these like high minded ideas um and they've also invented like a very generic sort of uh american democracy where i i guess all of their <laughs> all of their decisions are made by a bunch of dudes in a room yelling at each other <laughs> right it's not super productive or maybe it's just so real that it 
it hurts. I was like, oh, okay. I think there are women rats in that scene where they're all sort of like talking, but none of them say anything. So it's impossible to know. It might just be a sausage fest in there in the rosebush. Yeah, I, I feel like it is. I definitely <laughs> didn't notice any female rats overall. I feel like they would have been like purple or something. If <laughs> just Yeah, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. With like long eyelashes. Or like have Mrs. a bow. Has. Right. She has yeah. so many eyelashes. They're beautifully animated as well. I mean, yeah, this it's la- a nice touch. <laughs> this last viewing, I couldn't not look at her lashes. So, you know, let's let's kind of jump into the the look at this thing. So, all right, yeah, you, you take it. Don Don Bluth, done with Disney. Don Bluth, Disney's canceled. I'm out. Bye. I'm taking all your guys. See ya. But why? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> disgruntled. Well. To boil it down, I'm sure there's a lot of juicy deets um, that may or may not be public. Who knows of like what happened during this time? But in essence, it appears that Don Bluth's biggest beef was that Disney was not pushing the envelope anymore. And he felt like they were just trying to do the cheap thing, essentially, to make a buck. Uh, and I can kind of see his point. I need to quickly look up what movies were coming out at this time. There's one in particular that I am thinking of. No, it's not that one. But I think he quit around the time that they were making Fox and the Hound. Yeah. Which I think is fine. I haven't watched it in a long time. I don't remember the quality of it. I feel like it looked fine. But um, at the end of the day, that's what he felt, that they weren't pushing techniques. And uh, it's you really get the sense, if you read anything about Don Bluth, that he just had this genuine love of just the old the classic style of disney mm-hmm. that golden era and he's like he wants to bring that back where it was all about like pushing the technology but like using very traditional methods and you know spending more money to up the quality which of course studios maybe not so into um, but that was what he was all about so he's like all right i'm out i'm gonna do my own thing and I guess enough, you know, animators at Disney felt the same way that they were like, we're we're going with him. Like, we're going to go do this. Yeah, I think he brought, it was three of them, I believe, originally. And then they kind of picked up uh, 14 in total. And I, I was looking at some old footage, you know, you know, when these animators always like get out the camera and they act goofy and it's like shots around the office. They were just working in like a a garage basically. And Don Bluth is saying things like, Oh yeah, it's great. You know, I mean, we're all putting in extra time. Nobody's getting paid anymore, but you know, we're, we're doing magic here. It's like, yeah, that sounds good for you, the director, but does everybody feel that so great about this? I don't know. <laughs> you always have to wonder. I mean, you don't know. And um, I didn't know about this. This is sort of going to, to before he actually walked out, but I had never heard of this until this week when I was looking into this whole situation. But he made this entire like 20 minute short film that I've never seen that I'd really like to see now that I know it exists called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Yep. Which is very cats to me as a name. Wow. <laughs> Big cats energy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's he made that while he was at Disney and it was kind of like on the side with like a bunch of other animators. I think out of his garage. That's kind of, they had this whole setup mm-hmm. going. It was like shoestring budget. We're going to make this short. And he pitched it to Disney because he was hoping that they would pick up the tab, essentially, that they would be like, all right, like we're going to, we're going to finish this out and we're going to like cover the budget and like whatever. And Disney was like, no, I actually think that they refused to watch it. Oh, wow. If I remember correctly, he tried to show it to Ron Miller and Ron Miller, who was the studio head at the time. And he was like, don't 
no, like, no thanks. And um, I imagine that contributed to some of his, you know, okay, you don't want my stuff. Yeah. Like, I'm out I'm out of here. Maybe he's getting like a, a little too big for his britches or something. It might have just been sort of like a play for power sort of thing or something. Because clearly he has stuff he wants to say with his work and may, he wasn't really finding a home for that. Yeah, which is like, it's hard not to relate to it in a way where like, I certainly feel like, hey, I got stuff to say and I have like a certain amount of talent. And if I'm in an environment where people don't seem to notice that in any capacity, like, yeah, I'll be put out. That's a relatable thing, mm-hmm. probably for any creator. Uh, whether or not like bailing was the right call, who knows? But I mean, we got a lot of really weird, cool movies out of it. So, mm-hmm. so okay. So we got a the, the Don Bluth look. It's a little classic Disney. It's got a little bit of the Rankin Bass flavor too, which I feel like is also just a studio of the times. It's that, you know, you're just going to sort of absorb some of that aesthetic simply because it's like a contemporary of you. But he's still using that, you know, he watching some behind the scenes footage, they're like, yeah, it's like the golden era, but it's not really because they're still doing that xerography, which is like this Mm -hmm. era of Disney, which if you don't know what that means, it basically means cutting out the whole process of inking the line art. So now they're just taking the line art and putting it against this like Xerox machine and turning it to like black line, which is why the movies of this era of Disney look so uh, I don't know. I guess they're kind of just like sketchy. Yeah, they're sketchy. They have like bit, really fat way. black line work, which is cool in its own way, but it does not look like something like uh, Sleeping Beauty. That's for sure. Yeah, it's not. It's a lot more messy looking, mm. and that's not. Yeah, not in a in a derogatory way, but it's not so clean and polished. There are certain Disney movies that are like that. Yeah, and then there's like I think you know like Aristocats was like a Xerox movie. Right. And you can just see, by the way, like the lines are just so fuzzy, you know, and very sketchy. It's because of that process. And that might've been something that was just, you know, it's part of the problem of this era. You know, that's part of the cheapness because when you get up to Little Mermaid, that look is gone and is, um, you know, Little Mermaid has a lot going for it, but part of that revival must've been like a change in that that process. So for like Don Bluth to be like, oh yeah, we're bringing back this golden era. It's like, yeah, you kind of were, but you're also kind of doing the cheaper Disney thing too at the same time. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. To wonder, I want like, well, I don't know what the budget was for this movie, but I, do. I mean, it's it a risky biz. 6.3 to- it ended up costing. Mm, yeah. Million dollars. Yep. That makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. must be weird to, Leave Disney, try to do your own thing. Yeah, they want <laughs> figure out how to work. They wanted six work. four, and then I guess who is it? I don't know if it's uh, United Artists. I can't remember the studio, but uh, they got five seven, and then they have, had to put up uh, third mortgages or whatever to get it done. So I mean, yeah, they really I believed in that. this thing. I guess. That's why that's such a strange, this is like a brief aside, but it is very strange to me when I found out that like the Disney studio, even in its like earliest first days was just like constantly on the brink of going yeah. bust. Mm-hmm. And like people don't, I mean, probably because Disney's done a great job of like making you never ever think about stuff like that or worrying about that. But it's really interesting that they were like, Walt Disney was always like, we're doing this, like just spend all the money. And his brother was like, wait, yeah. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> Like, no, we can't do that. We're like constantly talking to the banks, like trying to make it work. It's just fascinating to me. Like a lot of why we have any of this stuff to talk about and begin with to begin with is because of people just being like, 
mortgage your house, whatever. Like, we're going to make this work. We're going to make this cartoon. And I don't know. I think there's something kind of wild about that. But at the same time, like, I mean, it's a little admirable. I wouldn't, I don't think. But it's just an interesting... (laughs) You got to have characters out there, I guess, willing to kind of do that stuff. Yeah, there's just some, I mean, that's part of the magic of loving animation is you just know there's these figures that something about this process and the extreme ambition of it and how it's completely not, uh, it's not like economical to do anything this way at all. But there's just these couple people that decided, hey, we're going to try. And Walt Disney like kept failing and kept going and refined it and found a thing. And then people like kids for generations have just been like, oh, this is, this is like how we express ourselves as humans, like through this weird maze of money and compromise and drawing. And, and you just get these characters like Don Bluth, you just believe in it so hard. It's just kind of like, you know, it makes you want to know more about them. Yeah, like he can't be denied. (laughs) And it's it's funny because like all of this, to loop back to kind of his aesthetic, I really like a lot of Don Bluth movies, but I also don't like them and I don't like the way they look. But I also love the way they look. It's completely ridiculous. So like there's a lot of stuff I want to say about his aesthetic generally, but like just tying it to this movie, um, like his character designs are so bizarre and like toothy and like craggly <laughs> yeah, warty and lots of warts yeah like and it, it's so strange to me um one of the things that you'll notice like i hope this isn't like a shattered glass moment for Uh-oh. people if, if you haven't noticed this <laughs> but like i actually find his movies kind of exhausting physically to watch because the character's animation is so theatrical and so like the characters are never not moving and they're moving in these huge arcs always. Like a character will be like, yeah, I'll go do that. And their head will go like all the way up to the top of the screen and back down. And they'll like sweep their arm out like this <laughs> huge circle. And they're always doing it. And they're all – and it's honestly, it's so pervasive and so wild that it's like – it's amazing to me because it's true for every single character in every yes. single movie yeah. that he's ever made. And I'm just like, who is giving this direction like (laughs) that you have such like an iron kind of clad grip on your animation that it's just all your characters emote in this way. And it's I find it very exhausting, but it's also it's just like it's so emblematic, like you are watching a blue thing. It's you can't not know that that's like one of his characters. Wow. What did you say? You called it exhaustive to watch, I think like that. I think that's exactly right. Like, uh. My wife, Maura, haven't brought her up yet. So Maura and I were watching this last night and you just can't help but like, like gesture and move and like <laughs> loose lip, like slack jawed. There's just so much motion. You're right. And I think they take up a lot of story time with all this motion. Because if you think about what happens in this movie, it's not a hell of a lot. And it's 83 no. minutes, not super long, but there's so much gesture and just joy of animating being done by these people. They, uh, God, kind of get along with it a bit. And you, when you go back and watch some of the, the Disney, like, uh, you know, the nine old men. Nine old men. Yeah. Like Frank and Ollie, when you see footage of them acting out the parts, there's just, it just comes down to acting. They just have a different process and it, it's a little tighter. It's not like eggs exhaustive, as you say. And Don Bluth just doesn't bring that, uh, that crackle to his stuff it's just so it's like globbier (laughs) it's like the physics are heavier or something too 
I, I think it's a philosophy of animation thing, maybe. Well, because I'm reminded of, I don't have an exact quote in front of me, but I know like Miyazaki's whole like process of thinking behind his animation, his movies is that, you know, characters need to be seen doing little things that don't really matter to the plot because it makes them feel more alive. For example, there's like one scene in Spirited Away where the main character, Chihiro, is like, She's putting her shoes back on and she taps one of her, like the tip of her toe on the ground to kind of kick the shoe all the way on her foot before she like runs off. And that was a particular motion that people have like kind of homed in on and been like, she didn't need to do that, but it's just like something that she would do and it makes her feel like a real person. So they'll spend time adding stuff like that in. And it's like, I feel like Don Bluth is just like, brick on the gas pedal just like the characters will always be moving which i don't like i certainly wouldn't do it that way right I, so i i don't like i don't know i don't want to say like i don't agree with this because i think it works for him it's obviously worked for him but it's just like it's so chaotic but another thing too that maybe we'll talk about a little bit when we get into the voice cast that I'd never really thought about before, but it really feels a lot like it's very theatrical. Like yeah. this movie, and especially when you look at like some of the casting, like a lot of people are like more with a theater background mm -hmm. and they're very like Shakespearean kind of like belting to the rafters, whatever. So, and I think a lot of the scenes play out in that way. And it's almost like his characters are animated, like they're gesticulating on a stage so that everybody can see it. Right. <laughs> Even though that's not necessary at all for the media. Yeah. In a, it, in a way, the way they do it is kind of the opposite of the Miyazaki, like small moments. It's They're always doing broad gestures. They always feel like they're... And it almost makes them feel less real because they're only acting to be the role that they are in the story. Like so many of these characters, like if you kind of go down the list, you got, okay, Mrs. Brisby. I, I think she's pretty well-rounded. She's interesting. She moves. I, I love the way she moves as like a small mouse. Cause she's very, yes. Um, yes. She's kind of fragile. Like you, you don't want her to get hurt, which I think is a great feature of like a character that's like missing in a lot of uh, modern movies, like this idea that they, they can be harmed. Like she feels. Yeah, brutal. she really she moves like a real mouse, which mm -hmm. is not really something that the other characters do at all. But like right at the beginning of the movie, there's just a scene where she gets startled by something and she's running on all fours. Yeah, perfectly like a mouse. And she even has the little cloak on that she's wearing. Cloak, she's like yeah. wearing clothes, but she still just looks like the form of a mouse. And that felt really good. Like that was a really nicely animated moment. She might be my favorite Don Bluth character just overall. She has a great silhouette. There's a couple shots where you um, like something's shining on her and you just see her as a, a black form. And she just looks awesome. Like she'll be kind of hunched over a little bit and her cape pops off the back. So she. Yeah, I think she's, she's just favorite. a great character too. Like she. It's not very often that you see a movie where the main character is like a widowed woman yeah. who also needs to kind of be going and like doing stuff and like putting her own self at risk in these like fantasy situations. Mm -hmm. It feels a little distinctive. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, she has like a real feminine energy. She's like maternal. She's doing this for her family and her kids, but she's also, you know, like willing to rise to the challenge when it comes to her, when, you know, the task is put upon her to to do something or you know, to visit the rats and stuff. Uh, so something I, I learned about her design, which I thought was interesting, was there was a lot of going on with her ears and like the placement of the ears was saying a lot about how, I guess, feminine she looked. So that's why her ears are, are way up and they pull her hair up to make her 
just a, a little crisper and tighter. And uh, I guess it's supposed to be like she's put her hair up in a bun or something kind of. That's so interesting because I'd never thought about it and I totally see it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, so j- just on the fact of the character design. So so Mrs. Brisby, Great Owl, Jeremy, Nicodemus, Mr. Ages, Justin, and Jenner. I could – most of these characters are unlikable, I would say. Like Mr. Ages – is yeah, Mr. H is a crotchety old shit. Yeah, he has like, no other side helpful. of him, right? He's not nice whatsoever. It, the movie starts with him being like, "Hit the bricks, yeah. like get out of my face," mm-hmm. and she hasn't even said anything to him. Like, it's it's just strange choices. It's it's without that Walt Disney there to say there needs to be a charm to things. I think this this movie is just missing so much of that. Not to compare it always to Disney, but. If you're going to break from Disney, maybe take some of that with you because Well, and it's <laughs> it's interesting because I I feel like Bluth's whole energy was somebody. So Disney was like, "Hey, animation should be a thing. Let's do it." Whatever. Decades later, you have Don Bluth who loved Disney to him like the first, you know, there was like the first generation and then he's kind of like in the second generation of animation. So all of his inspiration, presumably, is like really intimately tied up in all of that early Disney stuff. So I imagine it's like foundational inspiration for him. That's why he's like, let's go back to basics, Disney style, I'm out. And it is really interesting to compare, though, because of how little Disney, like, there is a parent Mm -hmm. in his work. It doesn't feel the same as any of the early Disney stuff, kind of at all. Yeah. And yeah, even his character designs are like anti-appeal, which I totally agree with you. And I think Mrs. Brisby is one of my favorite, like of his characters out of all of his characters. And his characters are ugly and weird looking and they're not (laughs) friendly looking. And they like don't really follow a lot of what you would traditionally say is like the principle of appeal and like the animation principles that the Disney animators kind of put together. Right. And it's so strange. It's really bizarre. Like they're, they're, there are some magical moves though. Like I do love the great owl is, is gross and disgusting, but he is sort of a wonder to look at because he's quite complicated and he's so big on the screen. The way they frame him, you never really get a good look at him, which is, is pretty amazing. Like Disney, Disney can't do, they wouldn't aspire to do that sort of thing, which is like, you know, that's maybe part of the thing we like about this is like the urge to do like the weird, gross, yeah. Unappealing thing and take so much time and resources to do that. That's kind of cool, I guess. Yeah, that's what I love about Don Bluth stuff. Like the the vibe I get from the Don Bluth movies that I really like is like creepy and gross and kind of depressing and sad. Mm-hmm. Like they're kind of icky. Yeah. Like we'll talk about this, I'm sure, at a later time. But like All Dogs Go to Heaven is probably my favorite of all the stuff that he's done. And like there's something about that movie that is just creepy yeah. the whole time. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, but for some reason that you also respond to it mm-hmm. and you're just like, yeah, like I enjoy watching this. I'm a child and I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's evocative. <laughs> and I, I guess un- unlike Disney who aspire to like have theme parks and this sort of like, you know, recreating the, the fantasy of Americana, Don Bluth just wants to make movies apparently. I mean, he never tried to make a theme park as far as I know. So maybe that's. That's part of it is it's all contained in the screen. It doesn't need to eke out into the bigger world and like have a place for kids to go and frolic. Like you're never going to see like a Nicodemus walk around character 
anywhere. It would God, just no. be like very upsetting. <laughs> be so unnerving. Yeah, I do. When I was watching this movie again, I was reminded of when we were talking about, it's not the same at all, but when we were talking about The Incredibles and how Brad Bird's whole mindset was like, I just want you to have a good time at the movies. So like, don't mm-hmm. worry about the themes because I'm not worried about the themes. And this movie, I was like, I feel like they're weirdly similar because I think that Don Bluth was like, I want to take, I want to tell a cool story. And so I don't think he was thinking about the themes. He's thinking about the aesthetic. It's just that that aesthetic is like genre fantasy from the seventies. <laughs> yeah. And I do, I want to take a moment. It just seems appropriate to slot it in here to talk about the backgrounds in this movie in particular because oh, they're yeah. amazing and like, like far and away the coolest thing about this movie to me aesthetically are some of these wild backgrounds and they're so like roger dean's like yes album artwork (laughs) that's like the airbrush and like ink and watercolor like paintings of like fantasy sci-fi landscapes that don't make any sense and so you know she's like in the rose bush and there's all these like thorny branches everywhere but also it's like it's a void of color and smoke and like like, what the fuck are we looking at? Or when she's in the tree, the gray owl's tree, and it just becomes... I, I don't even know how to describe it. There's they're like so wild. And the color everywhere. choices. Yeah. Yeah. They're so... There's like a shot where um Dragon the cat, the farmer's cat, it's really early on in the beginning of the movie, but he's like stalking her and the crow, and he's walking through this log, and you see like the interior log, and it's got the shadow of the cat up on the wall, and it's like glowing red with like a bright blue in the corner. And it's just like, why? Like, why are these colors? But I'm not upset about it. I mean, it looks awesome. It's just totally not. If you look at something like Bambi, Mm -hmm. similar, maybe old school Disney stuff, none of that. There are obviously striking uses of color in that movie, but like a lot of the movie sticks to its kind of forest like natural color color palette and this movie is just like everything's green in this scene everything's purple i don't know what to tell you but it's awesome like it looks so cool some of those background the composition of them they feel like i don't know a little german expressionism in the way they're arranged is they they make like this eye path that pulls you into them in the way uh i think pinocchio a lot of that feels like that too. Some of those set pieces, like the winding roads, just suck your eye deep into the center of them. I get a lot of that feeling from the backgrounds in Rats of Nim. Oh, they're so good. Uh, yeah. And a, a couple little things I was, well, actually, I didn't notice this. More pointed this out. When she goes into the thornbush for the first time, she's like, oh, it's like a, a neurological space. It's like, it's like you're inside the brain of something. I'm like, oh shit, I never thought of that. So that's really cool. That's a good note. Yeah, there's just some by taking the this book and stripping out so much of maybe the the themes and ideas of this like all all this like EPA stuff I was going on about for fucking ever. Jesus Christ. So good though, Ira. <laughs> it was really good. Don't beat yourself up. So by taking all that out and just sort of using it as the DNA of the visual aesthetic, you get. So many like great visual storytelling moves. So first of all, these great backgrounds that are extremely like just peak fantasy shit and great colors and some of this like tech stuff that it seems like it's been around a little bit, but they're like using it in an animation way for the first time. So you have, what does he call it? I don't know what the term is, but it's basically an animation cell with gaps left in it that you put light behind and then photograph that. And that's the way they get that kind of illuminated color glow that this movie is like constantly doing in character eyes and the amulet and all that stuff. 
that I think this is the the first real movie to kind of use that in animation. Am I right there? Yeah. Or, you know, I don't know if you're right, but I was going to specifically bring this up too, and I'm glad you did because. It's one of the aesthetic things that I can like, I think physically respond to it in this movie that I can tell like as a kid, I found it so compelling. Mm -hmm. And it's like something I want to use. Like it's an aesthetic I want to use in my own stuff because like you see it throughout. And it's especially when there's like a room full of stuff and they're all sparkling with that light, like these multicolored lights. And I was just like, I want to touch that. Like I want to be in that. And I don't, there's a couple points in this movie where it's like that. And he uses it in his other movies. And it just, there's something so like, just like, I don't know, rich about it. Yeah, the red, the red of that ambulant, it's the reddest thing I've ever seen. Right? It, it's just, it's just like, yeah. imagine seeing that in the theater. I feel like it would burn my eyes out. There's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like just. Gotta have the stone. <laughs> so there's, there's the glowing uh, you know, the backlit cells, other things they were doing, or uh, I guess they designed like a, a new variation on the multi-plane camera, which is basically the trying to simulate like foreground, mid-ground, background in a, a cinematic way, which is something you see going all the way back to like Disney's The Old Mill, which I feel like is probably maybe a great point of reference for Don Bluth. He's like, I want it to feel like The Old Mill watching this movie because it, it's evoking a lot of those flavors of like weather and like environment. And even the like the machine. Yeah. There's some of that like gear turning imagery that comes up quite a bit. Yeah. Cartoon gears are great. Iconic. And then there was that one other element that I'm not sure what the name for it is, but you see it like in the throne room, not the throne room, but they're, I don't know, their Congress or wherever the rats meet. It's the reflection <laughs> on the floor, which I think is like putting like, you know, a, a type of a glass pane in front of the animation and then photographing it. So it's kind of blurry. Yeah. I know Pinocchio did that. I think that was like a revolutionary thing in Pinocchio. There's like scenes where he's underwater, like in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And then they used like ripply glass over the top to do it. It's not exactly the same thing, but we're just so some old school stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like we're so close to CGI at this point. Like we're so close to like the rescuers and like some of those moves, like these sort of, cop out things and you could have nostalgia for that stuff too but maybe this movie is just so magical because it's really using like paints and glass and film and light and it's just so just cinematic in like the original way yeah and i do think that like one of the things that don bluth is really good at is just having this like dirty texture thing (laughs) like you brought up Really early on, maybe in the first episode, I don't quite remember, but about texture being like very important in art and like in animation. Yeah. And it's like Don Bluth, like there's just something palpable about this stuff that he made. And it's in a gross way a lot of the time, but it does feel like, like, I don't know. I feel like that you could breathe the air in of these movies and it would be like musty and like weird, but like it just feels real. I don't, and he's good at that. He's just really good at making it feel like something that you could be in and feel. Well, here's a little thing I learned about him from a documentary that just kind of endeared me. I'm not I'm not sure if you came across this when you were like looking around. So he grew up in rural Utah. And this must have, boy, how old is he? I don't know. But basically he's 83, I believe. He's 83 now or I think so, yeah. Okay. So whatever <laughs> whatever time he was growing up in rural Utah, he was riding a horse. Everywhere he went. Yeah, like the 40s or the 50s. He was born in 1937, yeah. which is really wild to me. So he, he, Grats. 
He was like, like all these directors, they love to tell the story of like the first time they went to the movie theater. And he would, he was saying how he would ride his horse into town to watch a movie. And then all the way back home, he would just dream about that movie. And it's like, Oh fuck, that's how you become a director. You convince yourself that these, these things are so enriching that they deserve to be like thought about and they deserve to be like part of who you become after. Cause then he says this great line about when he came out of the movies, he had something that he didn't have before, which is like exactly why you go to the fucking movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, that's exactly, that's why we get mad at people when they're talking during movies and why it's like heartbreaking to watch Netflix, like take over because you lose a bit of that going in somewhere and coming out with something new. So I just thought that was kind of like a beautiful little thing for a director to say. Yeah, I love that. I love thinking about him riding his horse on the way back home from the <laughs> movies and like thinking, I hope he kept his eyes on the road. I know. Didn't mow down any pedestrians like on, the, on his horse. The cork wheeled cars passing him by, like just wow. just a place. I, I mean, it's not that long ago, but in your mind, it feels like a million years ago, which is just kind of, it's interesting. <laughs> to know these these people that were like watching their movies and loving them and feeling like we want to bring what they made to stuff we make. But in a way, you can never truly do that because this guy rode a fucking horse to town every day and he lived in rural Utah. Like you just, we just would never get it. <laughs> Maybe we need to go do that. <laughs> yeah, we need to do a, a retreat. <laughs> I think it's time. <laughs> so- I think we have a little, so something I, just because we, we like, you know, we both make stuff. We both like to draw and animate and like tell stories and things like that. And, True. And I pulled up this great little clip of Don sitting down with one of his animators and talking about animating a scene. So if you haven't seen the movie, there's a part where Miss Brisby goes in to uh, Nicodemus's study or laboratory or whatever it's his throne room he has a oh, throne that's room true. He's it's like and he's just main vibing wizard. in there on his throne i guess like it's a little very mysterious i don't know and he's got a great giant book like the the book of all books <laughs> that he's been working on himself and he has great great calligraphy and the scene is miss Mrs. Brisby reading from the book and she learns a little bit about her husband. And it's Dawn talking to one of his animators about how they're doing the scene where she approaches the book and her looking at it for the first time and reading it. And the poor animator is like, oh, you want me to draw it on like 18 by like 22 paper? That's going to be really hard. He's like, yeah, <laughs> it's just like, oh, yeah. There's, yeah, fool. There's the Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to my studio. There's the visionary and then there's the person who has to fucking actually do it. And those are two different mm -hmm. people and more respect for the person who has to draw Mrs. Brisby reading the book and not just the guy who has to say, yeah, do it. <laughs> Jawfield, that's what the ideas guy is never popular for this reason. <laughs> but I, I thought it was funny, but then it was also a great storytelling lesson because He's explaining to her what Mrs. Brisby is feeling when she's looking at the book and how it's her first time reading something. And she's like learning facts about her husband's death that she didn't know. And he explains, she's not just reading the book. You have to draw her. You have to put those thoughts in her brain when you draw her, which is like, I don't know. It's just like one of those things that you can only learn through experience of drawing stuff and trying to tell a story with a drawing, right? Yeah. And as she reads the words, make sure that her head is actually turning and looking at the words. Okay. Now her thoughts. 
she actually sounds like she's just happy in the fact that she can read and then it starts to sink into her you know, what's she what's she learning about her husband that's what right. she wants to know okay. so you know put those thoughts in her brain okay. i don't want to see her just move up there and then just start to read you know that's just movement it seems like i should keep her kind of quiet i'm thinking that way i don't know if that's right but if i get her too active then you're, I'm right. Not, you're okay. right that scene they nailed it I didn't know about this that you're like this whole thing that you're talking about, but it's just like that's probably one of my favorite shots in the movie because it does feel very emotional. Yeah, there's a there's a great clip. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'll link it in the show notes if I figure out how to do that. Yeah, let's have show notes. I don't think we've done that so far. Sorry, yeah. everyone, well, we're avant garde in the <laughs> podcast world. Well, we'll put this clip in there because the animator, you can hear her talking with Dawn and kind of like coming to terms, and and suddenly it like clicks for her, and suddenly she is Mrs. Brisby thinking about her husband, and then she went ahead and you know did the work, and it was fucking hard as hell. But I, I don't know. That's the stuff like we have to champion on this show is these people unnamed that are just like making this shit come to life. So shout out to this animator. Who yeah, I, don't I love know her that. Name. <laughs> Okay, uh, this is a friendly reminder that from here on out, we will be spoiling every single frame of this movie. So if you want to check out The Secret of Nim, you haven't seen it before, now is your time to jump ship. Uh, and you know, uh, we do this every single week. So you can check out our episode archive or our social media stuff at cartoonfeelings.com. Maybe take a listen to a podcast of a movie that you have seen. So thanks so much and let's get into it. Now, you know it's a real fantasy movie when you start off with a scribe writing in cool gothic lettering. Okay. I'm so glad you brought it up. I'm so glad for my first comment about this movie to essentially be a dumb shit post because, like, I find it absolutely hysterical that, like, he's not even really writing. It's just magic ink that, like, he just yeah, sort of looks awesome. caresses the page in, like, a swirly <laughs> way and then the letters magically appear. <laughs> That is well, we, cheating. So here's my big question for this movie, and we probably will not be able to answer it. But is this thing, there's magic, but this is also kind of science fiction in a way. So it's like, it's just, it's so baffling to like, yeah, have this character magically write in a book. It it almost strips the movie of some of like the meaning of the whole totally. adventure. Totally. But it looks so fucking good. So fuck it. Yeah, so I'm like, we've like sort of talked about this a little bit in the first half of the episode, but I was thinking that this whole time, like, Don Bluth added any mystical elements to this movie. They weren't in the novel. There was no magic amulet. There was no wizard stuff. And it's really funny because Don Bluth just added it because he was like, Hell yeah. This would be awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure he, I think he wanted to just have some mysticism to enhance the sense of mystery, which totally works, I guess. But like, it does have the result that this movie sort of ultimately feels like, like nothing makes any sense (laughs) that's happening. No, it's weird. It's, it's pulling like, Lord of the Rings vibe, like this scene where, where basically, if you don't know, the be- very beginning of the movie has Nicodemus writing about Jonathan Brisby and his uh, death and what the rats need to do. And it reminds me like the the stakes of it all and like, we cannot stay a moment longer. It's, it's like in Fellowship when they enter the minds of 
mortier mm-hmm. or whatever, and they find the skeleton who's been writing and that they start to read <laughs> yeah, it. And it's yeah. like, oh shit, there's goblins. Like it just has that kind of energy. <laughs> I just want to quickly say too, I absolutely love, this gives me so much pleasure as an adult that I never could have seen coming as a child. But the character of Nicodemus, who is giving this like dry, dusty monologue at the beginning as he's writing in this book, uh, his he's voiced by Derek Jacoby, who was mm-hmm. uh he was Claudius, the Emperor Claudius in this 1970s, I think, like BBC miniseries, I, Claudius, that I watched in Latin class in high school and love and have like a cherishing, abiding love for. And so in hindsight, obviously, I saw this movie before I saw that. But in hindsight, now I'm like, wow, great casting, perfect casting, taking Claudius <laughs> and putting him because he's basically just playing the same character. Like I, Claudius, every episode opens with Claudius being like, I'm an old emperor and I'm like writing my stories and like reflecting on the past and it's the same energy. And I'm like, great, great choice. He's perfect for that. It, yeah. The casting is all right. It's got a, a real BBC thing going on. And then you kind of drop in Dom DeLuise from, to give it that like Mel Brooks flavor. Too. So it's like, <laughs> oh, it's British, but don't worry, guys. It's still very American. We're going to have some fun stuff in here for you. <laughs> yeah. D- yeah. Sure. Jeremy is certainly fun. <laughs> Not in any fun way I appreciate. More in like the annoying kid on the playground way. Yeah. No, as I was mentioning to you earlier when we were on break, Jeremy is your stone friend that you're trying desperately to keep from doing himself harm. <laughs> so he just kind of gormlessly meanders through life and into directly into traffic. And you're like, get your shit together, man. Like, you got to figure this out. And they're a lost cause and there's no it's, hope for them. It's tough. I guess, not not to skip Jeremy's them. Case. I mean, I don't want to skip over meeting Mr. Ages, but we already shit on him <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So we, yeah. Let's bump back. Yeah. Well, I do have lots of thoughts on Jeremy. With the Mr. Ages stuff, yeah, he's annoying. But what I love is, okay, this is something we haven't talked about yet that you and I both care deeply about. The, the uh, reappropriation of human objects as things animals can use like a spool mm. that becomes a table or mm-hmm. a light or like a christmas light that becomes like a i don't know a magic globe of something yeah well, like his <laughs> this whole movie little, is packed with that kind of cleverness his whole little secret lab so i guess just to set the scene there's this like follow-up scene now where we first meet mrs brisby a concerned mom who's trying to get the medicine hookup for her seriously ill lad her young boy and so she goes to Mr. H's ha- home in like a defunct tractor. Yeah, it's slash like a thresher machine. Yeah, I was like, what is this thing? Yeah, it's um, some old farm equipment used for like bale. I think it it's a it makes bales of hay, possibly. That might be what it does. Yeah, possibly. Something. I guess nobody is using this yeah. anymore. He feels safe enough to like fully set up shop. He's got like a whole little lab. And this is an aesthetic that I fucking love, which is like, like lab equipment and stuff but in animation and used by mice (laughs) specifically Mm -hmm. so it's full of like glassware and it all has that um twinkling light like glowing aesthetic that we talked about before and it's all like multicolored and there's like green and yellow and like red lights shining over all the equipment it's very mysterious and everything magical yeah and it also feels dangerous too but because they're so small they're just eluding all the teeth of this this machinery and like all the rust it's, you know, it, their whole world, they are constantly at 
in danger, which is like one of those themes that probably hits both of us deeply because we've talked slightly about Watership Down, which is another movie, uh, animals in a world fraught with danger at all times. Like there's no, no breaks. And that book also came out in like 1972. So yeah, it's just in the air, but, um, yeah, so that's, that's definitely like part of this aesthetic is it's, it's wondrous, but it's extremely dangerous always, which is a great feeling. That's another thing I wanted to talk about with blues movies in general. This is a good spot to talk about it, I think, because like his movies always feel like something really heinous is about to happen. Yeah. And, uh, so the following scene, this is where I noticed, uh, we talked about this a little bit, I think, where you kind of, you feel a little icky watching these movies. Like they sort of have this feeling of dread when you watch Don Bluth movies and this mm-hmm. one too, definitely. And it's kind of odd and like trying to figure out why you like it still. Like that's kind of the magic of it. It's trying to figure out like why this movie kind of makes me feel uncomfortable and why. And I think like, one of the reasons I noticed in, I think it's like the third scene in the movie. She's left Mr. Ages. She has the medicine. And it's when she runs into Jeremy, who we love so much, our favorite crow character. And uh, they run into the cat and there's this whole, you know, so there is like this feeling of danger because he's Mm -hmm. caught up in all this string and she's like, hey, shut the fuck up because the cat's going to hear you and he's going to come murder you and I'm trying to save you. And Jeremy, of course, can't shut up because he's Jeremy, whatever. Uh, So the whole time you're like, oh, my God, this dude's about to get murdered in front of us and it's creepy there's no music playing i noticed this yeah a lot when of I was, scenes like that i was noticing there's so many scenes in this movie and i wonder if that's the case for other movies like all dogs go to heaven that have that feeling but mm-hmm. a lot of it is like jeremy not knowing how much trouble he's actually in and he's like making these weird noises and being like <sighs> and it's it, comes across as like really unnerving and it's dead silent in the background. And I'm really wondering if that use of music or like lack thereof is why a lot of these movies feel so weird. There's so much emphasis on Mm. people talking or making like weird physical noises as they're sort of struggling to survive with zero music cue. So you're just sort of left with what's happening on screen with like your impending knowledge that maybe this guy's going to get eaten alive in front of you. And there's no music cue to deaden it or even to be like, it's a dramatic moment. Like nothing is happening. It's just dead air. It's really hanging you out to dry, right? Because when you get into, I mean, Disney is constantly like teaching you how to relate to the characters through song and and all the way back to the, the first Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. They're, they're named emotions, the characters. Like you're always being told how to feel. Yeah, you're right. This movie doesn't really do that. There's these gaps in... In sound, in something else that seems to speak to the opposite of that is Don Bluth in one of the docs was saying, oh, yeah, often I animate to a piece of music. So he's drawing <laughs> characters in motion to like accommodate a song, but it's not the Jerry Goldsmith score. It's just something and then we never hear it. So it's like, that's hey, so interesting. Maybe align your two interests here of like <laughs> musically inspired animation and soundtrack. It's it's just a very bizarre and even like there's one song that happens plays over the credits and it also plays later in the movie where she's like feeding medicine to her boy and it's like this really hokey like 80s kind of ballad sort of song and it's about love it has like this cheesy lyrics about love and I'm just like this is weird especially for a director who has such a strong vision and like such a strong flavor in all of his work the uh-huh. use of music feels like a weird like missing step in that where I don't I'm not like remember that iconic like 
Don Bluth's taste in music is very apparent. It's not. It's not apparent to me at all. No. That's not to say it's bad, even. Like, the music, you know, there's a lot of parts in this movie where there is music, and it's good. It's just, like, not having it in so many places feels so alien. Yeah, it's weird. Unlike Pixar, which right away you kind of notice this like jazzy vibe of Pixar, and then that carries through most of the films. Like right. Don Bluth doesn't really have that uh, touchstone. He has like yeah, the super sappy stuff, like the kind of Art Garfunkel feeling things, and like American Tale is full of like little songs that the characters are singing, but it doesn't all like unify to the in the world of Don Bluth type of way. Other than that, it's kind of like eh. It's kind of lacking. Yeah, it's not a standout feature, really. Yeah. Now, the Jeremy-ness. Jeremy is so – I have <sighs> such a thing with him. So first of all, I love a, a crow in general. I love the, the black figure against like the watercolor wash backgrounds. Like when we meet him, it's kind of sunset and it's just a watercolor stain behind him, which is – uh, I spent a lot of time with watercolor, so I just love looking at, at those shapes behind him. And I I guess the yarn is speaking to the theme that we're all, I don't know, connected. Like he finds uh, a love interest at the end. Mrs. Brisby is still connected to Jonathan, even though he's gone. Like things are still connected. I guess that's what it's getting at. But it almost seems like, you know what we should do here just because – it would look amazing is tie this crow up in red ribbon, red, red <laughs> yarn. And it just looks so cool and good. It's just iconic. This is like, when I think of animation, I probably think of Jeremy wrapped up. In well, yarn. And he spends like 70% of his scenes wrapped up in different colored string. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Something's going on there. That's for sure. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's something. They must've just figured out it looks cool and they went with it. The physics and of it are complicated. For exactly. Sure, too. It's, yeah, that's that like, oh, it's so ambitious, but without much purpose. Like you could have had one moment and it would have been just as powerful, but they just keep going with it. Yeah, they keep tying this boy up in string. I don't know. The one time I turned against this movie in my whole life was when uh, Death Cab for Cutie's album Transatlanticism came out. And on the cover was a painting of Jeremy the Crow wrapped in red yarn. What? Like, don't you... Re- Fuck you, band. Like, this is my movie. You can't have it. So wow. I turned on that band and I turned on this movie for just a moment. I, have to I didn't Google want anybody else to know. Like, this really movie quick. kind of feels like a secret in some ways. That's so bizarre. Is that what that was referencing? I've never listened to that album, full disclose. I think it's just cover. I, I don't know where it comes in in the story, in the, the music. That's amazing. Um, How bizarre. A- okay. Good for them. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's a fun fact. I'm learning stuff on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's good to bring up Death Cab for Cutie every once in a while, I guess. <laughs> Why not? Very unfamiliar, honestly, with a lot of their stuff. Uh, yeah, it's fine. That'll be our, <laughs> our indie rock of the aughts episode <laughs> someday. That'll fit right in. Yeah, Jeremy's going to show up again a few times, and he's never going to change, and he's always going to be exactly the same. So not a lot of character growth. No, and Mrs. Brisby arc. doesn't like him at all either. So what? how are we supposed to feel about him? Questionable. It's funny. Yeah. As a kid, I think I didn't quite realize that he's basically completely functionally useless and like actively dangerous. Yeah. 
Uh, and she makes some comments to him like, so as a kid, I think you think he's just kind of the comic relief and you're like, oh, he's just kind of a goofy dude, you know, but he's like trying his best. And as an adult, you're like, this is like the man that kind of follows you around in a public space and he like doesn't seem to realize that you desperately want to get away and he like just won't let you. And like how that's super not cool. Like that's how Jeremy feels to me. Yeah, he's just chasing this poor widow around the park. Yeah, and like he's even just like, tell me, you were a girl once, like, tell me how to get (laughs) with the ladies. And she's like, okay, bye. And then he still follows her home. And it's like, like, oh, no, he's terrible. They try to give him a a little moment of redemption because she goes to help him. She loses her. At at this point, she's got um, like a cool envelope of medicine for Timothy, who has pneumonia. And uh, she loses it when Dragon the Cat attacks, but Jeremy managed to grab it and gives it back. So he he gets slightly redeemed and then she heads off home to her little family. I'm starting to notice now the scenes that I love in this movie are the transitional scenes when characters are going somewhere, like when she's going home, when she's going to the Rosebush, when she's going to the Great Owl. It's more the character interactions that are annoying and grating. But when she's moving there through like a map painting, Love it. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. Like, Don Bluth seems to really love his characters and, like, love his character moments. But, like, it's his worlds that I'm a lot more interested in. Yeah, I mean, you, we could really just sit here and talk about all the all the settings. They're, they're inside the tree. They fall into, like, uh, this kind of – they're in, like, a mill. They, they actually reference old mills. Like, later in the movie, Jeremy – or uh, not Jeremy, but Justin, another classic uh, – name from fantasy storytelling archetypes justin can we talk about the names in this movie really quickly <laughs> yeah i bad. don't understand it this must be is justin a character in the novel uh yeah i'm pretty sure these names oh god jenner is for sure yeah jenner but so okay line up. jenner and nicodemus you're like yes right of course and then you have justin that's like if it was like kyle <laughs> the right. great warrior mouse and i'm like Huh? Like, and it's really funny. There's a lot of that. Justin, Jonathan, Brisby. Yeah. And I'm like, really, Jonathan? Like, why don't y'all have cool? I don't know. Like, what do you think mice name each other in the wild? Because I bet you it's not Justin. Maybe it was a scientist in the lab's name and they just grabbed it. Maybe. And like, what's Mrs. Frisbee's name or Mrs. Brisby's name? Like, what? No, she doesn't get a first name, I guess. Uh, No, she's just Mrs. Brisby. It's probably Um, like Sally uh, or like... We all know Kelly or something like. Yeah, she just took her husband's name. She's just Mrs. Jonathan Brisby. So we meet the kids, and uh, they're they're fairly annoying. Like one of them's got a real attitude problem, and he just can't stand uh, Auntie Shrew. And I don't really blame him. So this yeah. is a case of like we're meeting these cute characters. They're charming to look at, but just their energy is a bit unpalatable. It's too much. And even, well, I mean, Auntie Shrew is intended to be an obnoxious character. Like, that's very apparent. She's got that. I mean, she's a shrew, I think, is the joke that they're going with, which (laughs) questionable. But, like, she's really, she's just, like, she's yelling at these kids who, like, don't even have a parent or guardian present. You know, she's just, like, the nasty neighbor sort of trope. Um, mm-hmm. she's one of the one the characters actually where I first was like when I sat down and watched this I was like oh yeah Don Bluth characters where I mean her snout is just rotating across the screen <laughs> like three sixty degrees <laughs> left and right it's just like wow like all over the place she's gesticulating her eyes are huge 
And they're all like this. Every character in the scene is like this. And it's like there's too many characters in the scene yelling at each other. And she's like, yeah, it's quite chaotic. Yeah. Calling this kid a brat and her face is taking up the whole screen. And he's like a loud mouth and his cheeks are like giant. And it's just, it is a lot. I feel like my neck is turning, like trying to track all the content. It's a different type of uh, domestic squabbling than we've seen in The Incredibles, which I I guess just families yelling at each other is a thing in animation that we're going to keep running into. Which is funny, though, because Auntie Shrew is not even a part of the family. I'm pretty sure she's just a shrew that lives nearby and is like, hey, I came over here to yell at you, I guess. Yeah, she doesn't really seem to have a role other than playing that type of cartoon character who's always at her wit's end and is constantly being like, upset by the children the character design of mrs brisby in the early stages they worked through a bunch of versions of her some of them were uh they decided were a little too i guess maybe pretty because they really wanted to play with this idea of her being kind of low lower class so it i remember mentioning i don't know why this stuff sticks with me but in the incredibles too where the whole kind of plot is kicked off by how they don't have a home or money but i had the complaint that their life seems totally fine like everything about their situation seemed fine even though they're saying they don't have any money this to me is the better version of how to show uh, characters that are like struggling in the economy of this world like mrs brisby has a ripped up cape she lives in like an old like uh, she lives in a cinder block and there's like an old pot on the roof. It's, you know, it's probably damp and musty. She doesn't have medicine for her kids. Everybody's fighting. Like this feels like characters that need support, you know, in the way the Incredibles wasn't pulling that off for me. So I'm glad that we're watching this movie now because I felt weird saying that in the Incredibles, but now I'm like, oh, this is why. Because I watched this when I was young and this is what it's like to be a broke cartoon character (laughs) (laughs) you've lived this this reality (laughs) yeah so i i just like that that adds a bit of i mean other than the her cape looks awesome like the way uh they animate cloth in this is very cool um but i i just uh i think it just is a great representation of her role in this world is she's like barely hanging on emotionally economically physically in all cases yeah, I mean, in a way, too, like, once the kids are not yelling and screaming at each other, and she's, like, taking care of the kid, and they all, like, have this moment where they're hanging out together as she's feeding John, uh, Timothy the medicine, it's kind of nice in a way. And you do, you're mm-hmm. like, well, this is her life. And this, you know, no dad. She's got all these kids she's got to take care of. I don't know. As a kid, you probably aren't really feeling that as much. But as an adult now, and she's sitting there being like, I hope he gets better soon. And you're like... You do kind of feel it in that moment, the urgency of her circumstances. Yeah, you do feel the the empathy because Timothy looks quite pathetic in that bed. I mean, he really looks like he's at death's door. Yeah, you get the feeling. She tells the kids like he's going to be okay. And you kind of get the feeling that she's like just saying that. Mm-hmm. Like just knowing that it, he might not be, but that she's just going to kind of hold it together until the worst happens. And, and the, the bed he's in actually looks super comfortable. Maura was pointing out, she's like, I really remember the scene where she's feeding him the medicine for some reason. And there must be something in that kind of Mary Poppins way of just us. When you're young, you connect with these sort of scenes of like kids taking medicine and in these like kind of magical situations. 
Yeah, honestly, too, I want to say this seems like nothing, but like that quilt that he's in is like so pillowy and fluffy. He's in this like checkered quilt and stuff like that in kids movies always sticks with me for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe I had like a fluffy quilt when I was a kid or something. It just feels like, yeah, maybe when you're a kid, you just you spend a lot of time in bed. You know, you're a kid. You're not doing that much with your life. So I don't know. And you're like, I mean, you kind of want to be in bed sometimes. It's like that fe- the, mm. the magical sick day from school. It's like, oh, yes. this Ugh. would be a good sick day bed. A hundred percent. It's funny watching this movie now because we really don't get to the rats till way later in the movie, but we get a little glimpse of them here. We we cut to a scene where we're outside the farmhouse and the rats are like stealing a power cable, I think. They're running across the window. Yeah, you get a nice shot of a silhouette of little like scraggly looking rats all like chain running this cable by the window. <laughs> so did that, those silhouettes, did they remind you of the rat from Lady and the Tramp? Oh my God. Um, no, they didn't explicitly, but like they look evil in this. Yeah. The rat, the rat from Lady and the Tramp looks like a little demon seed too, in a way that I found very upsetting. As yeah, a, exactly. As a fan of rats personally, <laughs> I was just like, man, this rat looks like a little monster. Well, like slavering at the mouth and like sharp teeth and all. Yeah, they do. They have a silhouette of like we are little evil creatures in that shot. Okay, we're taking we're taking a pause here because now now we're talking about rats and you really haven't gotten oh, into finally. Your, your rat story. I think this is the place to do it. <sighs> now you all get to finally find out why I'm so into rats, y'all. Um, I mean, it's not a long story, but you'll just note it that like it comes up quite frequently. I mean, there's a lot of rats in animated cartoons, so I'm going to talk about it. I assume it's unrelated, but I guess there's no way of knowing. But I've been a, an avowed rat owner of pet rats for, wow, I guess like a decade now, officially. Um, I've had many. Uh, I have two right now. They're so great. Their name's Stella and Luna. And they're wonderful. Um, but I love rats. I think they're awesome. I think they're super cute. I did have a pet mouse when I was a kid that I really loved. And maybe some of that was like from my red wall, you know, mm-hmm. situation. But like they're great pets and they're super smart. Um, yeah, it makes me really sympathetic to the rats in this movie, honestly, because I'm like, rats are already pretty intelligent. And one thing that I will note is that if we did make rats smart like this, like humans would be so boned. <laughs> <laughs> so like, if you give rats longevity, like it's over, like we are not coming back from that. They're definitely going to take over the whole world. We have to hope that they would be nice enough to be like, okay, we won't steal your electricity. We'll like go out and live in the woods by ourselves. Like that's the best case scenario for people. Right, that they don't want to continue to, they don't want to take our, <laughs> take our New York and run our pizza shops. Yeah, I do. I find it really interesting that rats come up so much and mice come up so much in animation. I don't know why that is because I feel like people don't like them. Like when Ratatouille was coming out, I know there's still some people who like can't quite get their heads around the concept of Ratatouille, like a rat in the kitchen. Like it's mm. really disgusting to them. And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm biased. I've spent a lot of time with rats, but like. Rats are really great, and it honestly sucks to me a little bit that people can't kind of divorce the their preconceived notions of rats. Like, yeah, I'm not saying that I want to, like, roll around on the floor with the subway rats in New York City, you know? I'm not into that necessarily, but, like, they're really intelligent and, like, really kind animals, and they're basically like having little dogs that can fit in your pocket, and they're so sweet. They work as a parable so easily because the New York rat... It's our fault. 
Like we made that rat. <laughs> like you yeah. can't be mad at it. It's like a reflection of humans shittiness. So to like hate the New York rat is to hate what we've done as humans to the world. Right. It's not like rats chose to live in squander in sewer tunnels. Right. And I feel like that that's kind of what the book has a bit of a flavor for. It's like now that we're smart enough to not to, to step out of that situation that humans put us in, who are we? Um, which is just like, I don't know that it's, it just so is, is such a compelling thing. Like rats are awesome. Yeah. And yeah, I, they're like kind of relatable. I don't know. I do. They are super smart, but they are pushed to the margins. I think it's easy to kind of put a human story on top of that. Yeah. If that makes sense. I mean, that's a lot of what yeah, it's kind of an underdog. are about. Right. It's yeah. an underdog sort of thing. But it is wild. And I also, I don't know, this is just me on my soapbox, I guess, but like people's kind of inexplicable hatred of rats is like one of the things that freaks me out about humanity, I think a little bit, because once you know about them, I don't know, it just feels like people are really quick to be like, you should just kill them. I mean, I'm ha- I've had people tell me that I should drown my pet rats just because I offhand comment that I have them, which is like kind of obscene to me. Or if I take them to the vet and I'm like in the waiting room and somebody notices that I have rats, they will like audibly be disgusted. And I'm like, what the fuck is your problem kind of a deal? And like, I don't know. It just feels very like uneducated to me and like unempathetic. Yeah. And it's like these animals feel pain and they're actually wildly intelligent. And the fact that we're like glue trapping them and stuff is a big problem for me. Anyway, don't use glue traps. Oh, yeah. God, no way. If you're using Ugh. glue traps and listening to this podcast. Get got. Yeah, you done here. Goodbye. <laughs> okay, I like that. Anyway. That, that was a great rat rant <laughs> because I, I think, uh, you know, it, it it does connect because rats are, we're going to see them over and over. And it's a great character type to, and it's it's a great like story yeah. of empathizing. And also like a conversation about intelligence and place in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Because honestly, you saying that just now, I'd never thought about that. And I feel like it was illuminating for me in the moment. Well, that, I, it, it occurs to me because that scene, you know, I asked you if it reminded you of Lady and the Tramp. It, it totally did for me. And Lady and the Tramp, like you said, that rat in that is a devil. It's like a one dimensional villainous character. And for them. Yeah, he's like a little dragon or something like a little demon. Yeah. And they, they show the rats here like they're kind of making you think that at first. And then we, and then we actually meet them. So it's, I don't know. It's just a great way to talk, communicate through like, uh, the language of like cartoon history to me. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we and I should have picked up on that because I just watched Lady in the Tramp like three weeks ago or something. So now you'll what are you gonna do? You'll never not see it. Oh, I do want to say I want to say really quickly that same scene with the rats stealing the power cable um, because for the longest time I thought that the only time you ever they that they ever spell out what Nim means is later you see it visually and we'll talk about that when we get there. But the wife of the farmer actually says it out loud here, and I didn't notice that until when I rewatched this movie for this podcast. Where she's like, Nim. And he, the farmer's like, what? And she goes, the National Institute of Mental Health. And I was like, oh, wow. They just fully tell you that. And I think even as a kid, I was like, wow, the only time you ever know what it is is when they like write it on a sign later. But they, it's not true. They like literally say what it is out loud. I kind of wish they didn't, though, because I do love that yeah. scene later where we get the backstory and everything's just on screen. That's like awesome to me. But it, it almost seems like a studio note from like higher up that's like well maybe you should Mm -hmm. have somebody say it but it's not like it really matters like who cares that they came from this institute 
really uh, like it or it doesn't matter what the acronym stands for in a way well yeah especially at this point you don't really need to know that and i think maybe that's one like why they slip it in there is because you're probably not paying that close of attention and it's funny because i remember when i was a kid i like never really listened to when the people were talking no. like i almost specifically remember tuning out and they're barely in it the humans barely speak at all and i was just like it's noise from adults like i don't hear it and i just like didn't retain it I'm surprised you even really see their faces as much as you do. I was expecting, in my memory, it's more of a uh, Charlie Brown type of situation where you see him yeah. from, like the leg up or something, but they do have faces. Just deleted it right out of our memory. So we get we get to a, a very kind of like Watership Down scene or like Beatrix Potter where the, the tractor starts up and it's ravishing the community and these animals, they, they claim to have been prepared, but they seem to just be panicking in the, in the moment and they're just fleeing in terror. Yeah, this is – I want to take a minute to talk about this because maybe this is like one of the first instances in this movie where you sort of feel like what is the plot? Like what is the world about? Yeah. And like sort of start to see the holes like where there's not really anything going on there because – so the scene is like – Auntie Shrew is there and she is losing her mind. She is like screaming at the top of her lungs. Presumably, I guess they're all panicking because this this moving day happens every year. And for some reason this year it happened early, like the frost, I don't know, came earlier or something like that. But every animal, yeah, is just still in here. And they're all like, I don't know, it's very much like a Bambi, like when man is in the forest type situation where all the animals are like fleeing out of their holes and there's like pheasants and stuff. They're all like, chipmunks are like running around it's it gets to this thing that i'm we're going to bring up when we get into more uh classic disney but the anthropomorphic animal in the world of normal animals is quite confusing even stylistically so it's like all right mrs brisby seems educated to some degree she has like a sense of logic she can read a little bit Auntie Shrew also seems to have her wits about her but then cut to other animals that seem totally just wild animals. Like we see a rabbit that looks like rabbit from Woody the Pooh and we see some quails. These animals don't seem like they would wear clothes. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, the clothes is the biggest thing. I was kind of waiting to bring this up, although it totally makes sense to do it now. But it's like one of those things that you just notice throughout the movie is like, why does she live in a house? None of the other ones do. And they like, even why is Auntie Shrew wearing knit clothing? Like they have clothes. So what does it mean for the rats to have become intelligent? Uh, so I was kind of waiting to bring it up because of the strong imagery and the sequence where the rats gain intelligence, the flashback to Nim mm -hmm. and they get injected and they like go through this process. But they look like animals at the beginning right. of that sequence. And then, you know, by the time it gets to the end, they're, you know, emoting and they, you know, they have more express. They're up on their like pine legs. I guess it's supposed to just be shorthand, but it, it absolutely is like, why is Mrs. Frisbee just kind of living the same sort of life if she's supposed to just be like a regular field mouse? Yeah, it's it's confusing. You could say it's like inherited from her time with Jonathan because he was technically like one of the rats of Nim, but it's- But then the anti-shrew having exactly. the same situation is so bizarre. And yeah, I think it's just another thing where they were like, Whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> doesn't matter. We should probably be the same <laughs> about it. But that wouldn't be cartoon feelings. If we didn't get really <laughs> anal about this for some reason, no, it wouldn't be the show. I mean, we're all, we want to understand these movies, right? It's like, we're just trying to make sense of it. So it's not like it's, it's a clearly an un, unthought out idea for, for whatever reason. 
Um, but it's so it it's I mean it's the conversation of is this fantasy or science fiction? Like, what are we supposed to take away from these sort of like world building choices? Because then we jump to Nicodemus. And we're in his cool throne room where he has like this magic scene portal, like Soromon or something like he's. But it's like so electronic, too. There's yeah, like it's... whirring, like <laughs> gyros and like colored lights all around it. And yeah, it's totally bizarre. Yeah, it's kind of steampunk ish, but in like a cool way or something. It Like the colors are great. I mean, it all looks great. I love it. It's a great scene. His cape looks awesome the way it's blowing. But it it just instantly is like, oh, all right. So there's magic and metaphysics and mysticism, but then there's also like chemical enhancements and injections and like science. Yeah. It's like, are the rats advanced because of the injections alone and the, their, their awareness of science? Or like, is there a magic element as well that's at work because also like the the realm in which they live feels a lot more magical than it does scientific to me uh right which i'm gonna wait to get into that a little bit and i also wanted to bring up like one more like another thing this is the same line of thinking but when this tractor comes to life and there's a scene where all these animals are fleeing for their lives auntie true is the one that climbs into the tractor and like pops a cable yeah to disable the machine and i'm like if these animals are smart enough to intentionally sabotage human hardware <laughs> to save their own lives, I just don't understand how that's possible. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. She can identify a fuel line on a tractor and like disconnects it <laughs> to the point where farmer what? Fitzgibbon is like, oh, I got to get a new, got to order a new part. Yeah, I got to go down to Tashi Station and get some power converters <laughs> to get my tractor back up again. Yeah, maybe she was a farmer in another life and- I mean, maybe she built the tractor. Very wild. Maybe there's some reincarnation um, stuff going on here we don't know about. Yeah, maybe she's on the farmer's side all along. This is a double agent. So now, I didn't notice this before, but uh, the tractor scene is particularly dramatic, whether you like that or not about it. But it's uh, it's partly because the tractor is rotoscoped. How do you feel about just rotoscoping in general? Um, I mean, I've done it before. Do you like So I feel like fine look? about it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> that feels like a cop out. I, cause I think sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Cause for example, in like 101 Dalmatians and Disney, they did the same thing with Cruella DeVille's car. Yeah. So if you like watch it now, you're like, dang, that looks really 3D. And I'm pretty sure they built it out of like cardboard and then shot it. And then they trace that over to get that 3D look. And it's certainly very visually distinctive. But in that case, I feel like it works. Mm -hmm. In this movie, it does kind of stick out to me. But I, I don't hate it. But it just looks a little at odds. But I also think it's because they're usually doing it in situations where there's some kind of mechanical, like a vehicle. Or uh, later, Mrs. Brisby is like trapped in a birdcage by the kid in the farmhouse. And the birdcage is a rotoscoped object and it's like very three-dimensional it's so bizarre because it looks like cg kind of to like the modern audience eye now and maybe that actually makes it weirder i wonder if it looked more normal like when these movies came out and there wasn't cg yet so you're just like yeah i don't know that's just a nice drawing of a birdcage or something but all right so now we get into some real lord of the Rings stuff when we meet the great owl this just feels like a it just feels like that sort of fantasiness. Like it, the the further, yeah. Well, Mrs. Brisby's really on a hero's journey here. Despite our, I I like her hero's journey because it's not as epic as the usual one. It's it's meant to like 
resolve a family issue. So I'm fine with yeah. it. But this is like that classic moment where she meets sort of like the Oracle character. Well, and can I also say more in the lines of, I don't know, it's not really a criticism or anything. I just kind of want to note during parts of this movie when it sort of, things just sort of happen for no reason, really. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those moments where uh, transitionally, there's this little scene of Nicodemus looking in his, um, I don't know, scrying orb. And he's like, Mrs. Brisby, you need to go talk to the owl. And then the next scene is her flying with Jeremy to go see the great owl. But like, why does she go do that? Like, who told her that she needs to go do that? And for what reason? Literally no one. Well, you're right. And later, she is in, I can't remember exactly what the setting is, but there is later a scene where she talks about, or someone says, you know, she went to see the great owl and somebody is like, nobody sees the great owl and lives to tell the tale. So it's like, why did she elect to go? It's very bizarre. Like, there is literally no reason or motivation for her to go. There is just an interstitial scene where Nicodemus is like, you got to go there. Like, magic. Not to her at all. He's just talking to a TV that has her on it. And then she's going. And it just, it's super interesting because I never noticed that until this time. Oh, yeah. What a hole. <laughs> there's no motivation Jesus. for her to go there. I wonder if there's a scene. But go there she does. Something. I guess that's what, if, if, I mean, you know, maybe that's part of our hatred of the, or our suspicion of the hero's journey is if you implement it, you can break the logic of it, but your brain still follows the the beats, even if they don't connect just because you're like, oh yeah, of course there's a giant owl scene where um, he forebodes some danger, but she makes it out because she's like the chosen one. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, he's nice, you know, or whatever. Like he knows her uh, husband. So I guess it's fine. <laughs> Right. He does kind of open that door, right? Like that crucial beat of like who we need to learn a little bit more about who this husband is, because part of her journey is, I guess, you know, understanding where he came from. Yeah, it's you wonder how much she actually doesn't know about him. And he's sort of so he's always sort of off screen. You don't really ever find out that much about him. But it is clear that he didn't tell her about um, his super intelligence and all of this stuff. She never that comes as a surprise to her. Yeah, because so much of her journey seems bound to who he was. Like even her name is his name, but we're, we don't, not that we need flashbacks, but we don't ever see them together. We understand she loves him, but that's just like, well, yeah, of course you love your husband and you have kids, but yeah, you're right. We don't quite understand the, the stakes of, of her sense of self in relation to like knowing the rest of his story. Yeah, I think it's just like something to know, too, because I don't think it's bad. And something I like about this movie is that it's about her. Yeah. And not about him and that he doesn't get a lot of screen time. And it's but it's it's interesting that externally. So I don't feel like a lot of her motives have to do directly with him because they don't. But the other characters helping her a lot of that revolves around because she was his wife, his legacy. Yeah, true. It's just kind of strange because the owl, she goes in here and I get, you know, for whatever reason, she feels compelled to seek the owl's advice about what to do about her family. And he is not going to help her like point blank, like just move, like whatever, get out of my face. Kind of like, I, you know, you're wasting my time sort of a deal. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it comes out that she's Mrs. Brisby and he's like, what? Well, go to the rats. They'll help you. Like all based on the name alone. Yeah, that's a good point. He's kind of like, he's the thing that bridges her to this other world. And then that helps her sort of like, I don't know, I guess just get a sense of confidence at the end, which is very much tied to her magical amulet. But we'll get to 
the problems of the amulet when they arise. <laughs> so we, we do have to indulge. I'm going to, I don't even want to talk about this scene because this scene is the most annoying scene where Jeremy has cloaked himself in, uh, I don't know, pantaloons or like some garment. He's in disguise and he's, yeah, keeps God knows. I don't know. Fuck that scene. I don't understand it at all. Again, like, this is why it just seems like your friend, you're out at the club, it's three in the morning, and your friend is, like, <laughs> yeah. having a time and almost dies because he just, like, fully stumbles, like, into the arms. The only reason he doesn't die in the hands of Dragon at that moment, I'm pretty sure the implication is that they've drugged the cat because that's, like, a recurring theme is that the rats drug the cat so that he's sleeping and he doesn't kill them. Uh And I'm pretty sure that's the only thing that saves his ass in this moment, but it's just, like... Oh, he's being really obnoxious. Boy, howdy. Well, the only thing that redeems the scene is it leads to the, the best scene of the movie is the walkthrough of the Rosebush. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I don't even know where to begin at this scene because there's a few things I wanted to talk about it. One of them is just because it looks really fucking cool. Like, again, like all the backgrounds here are awesome. There's kind of like an Alice in Wonderland, like the Disney animated version yeah. where like lights are like flickering in the background. And, and like, you know, it just feels very like what's going on here. Cause there's also a, she walks in and there's, you know, it's all thorny and rose bushy. And then as she's walking by, like the vines of the rose bush start to sort of like move and tighten and like seal up the doorway on their own, which is horrific and like isn't explained at all like it's creepy what's going on with that i don't know and she's walking by all of these things that just look like these ancient artifacts from like a lost civilization like what is going on down here yeah it's all very lived in they have all these separate rooms for i don't know just it seems like experiments or they're just kind of collecting human artifacts it's got kind of that cargo cult feel where They've, they've scrounged up what they can and they've imbued it with like meaning and symbolism in their own way and like reconditioned this stuff. But some of it just looks totally alien too. Yeah. But she gets into this pathway and there's like, it's like green and very floral, but there's like this building in the background that is like a big, I don't even know what it is. It just looks like it's a, it's a weird flower thing, but it's like also a structure. And as she's walking through, like the flower buds are like opening and closing. And it's just like, where the hell are we? Where are we? What's going on? Like, this doesn't feel like rats got smart and started like leeching human technology. It's just like rats have built this entire fantasy land down here that is fully magical. Yeah. It's almost, it, it leans more towards like, religious the religious aspects of culture or something just with the the weird shapes and forms they they seem to be like evoking you know spiritualism more than they are just like science <laughs> yeah but it's, it's awesome very, it just goes unexplained yeah it looks really fucking cool and this um I don't know. I don't know about you. I feel like visually this is one of our favorite scenes, like little sections from here. But she gets confronted by yeah. this guard rat with like the really, really cool like lightning spear. Yeah, that spear. <laughs> that also is the doesn't best really spear. make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so cool. And he's like so threatening and ominous. He has this big red cloak, but otherwise he's like just like this dark shape with pupilless eyes. And he's just like, he's obviously not trying to har like harm her. He's sort of scaring her away but he doesn't say anything she's like hi like i'm looking for nicodemus and he's just like stabbing at her with this electric spear and he runs her off essentially and then she runs into mr ages who is like oh god okay hi like 
you shouldn't be here, but like, I guess let's go find Nicodemus. Yeah, the guard. He, and it's so strange. He's more threatening and imposing than Jenner is. And he, he does have a name, but he is just simply a guard rat. I know Justin Justin references him later, but he, he does seem like he's almost as magical as uh, Nicodemus and just as weird, like just the, the way he in, interacts with the world. Yeah, he's very alien, very strange. And to not talk at all. Right, exactly. And he has that those vacant eyes, which it's unclear what why characters sometimes have no pupils. Like the owl has no pupils. I used to think that was because maybe he was blind. But Nicodemus also has no pupils. But is he blind? I don't think so. Maybe. Unclear. I did read that. And I this might have been in your notes, too. I'm not sure. But I did read that they they did that because they wanted to. I don't know what the reason for that specific aesthetic choice was, but they wanted the owl and Nicodemus to feel like the same character, which I thought was mm. really interesting. OK. And I don't I sort of understand it, but I also don't really know why. But it, it's. I mean, they don't ever really explain why Nicodemus is the way that he is, because he's supposed to be this, like, really wise, like, spiritual, mysterious figure, and that is literally all you ever find out about him. You never find out why he is the way he is, why he's got these, like, wizardly uh, attributes or anything. And I, as a kid, I did not really associate those characters in the way that I think they intended, even though the aesthetic compliments of their design are very obvious. Like, they have the same kind of knobbly like claws yeah, and like their swoopy kind of hair. And then the eyes, yeah, are exactly the same, but it's very, it's interesting. Um, they, they seem to be, uh, I don't know. I always, it's just kind of one of those fantasy tropes of like they're they, maybe they age differently. It seems to imply like they, in the way kind of like Merlin or Gandalf has like lived so many lifetimes they almost seem like they're in that realm of type of character because the 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 lair of the owl is ancient that tree is beyond old that he's in and nicodemus seems like he's he just seems wiser than the other rats even though how could he be that much older but he also seems more educated because he can write not just read right it's it just kind of seems to add a flavor that makes this world seem a lot bigger than it yeah, like they're like a I don't know, like a force of nature more than like a real character, maybe. Yeah. Or, or there's some kind of spirit that's like tapped into these creatures. Because I always, I thought it was just like a cool aesthetic device. But so owls presumably need to go out every night, or they go out outside every night. And I always thought it was really interesting that the owl in this movie is like covered in cobwebs, yeah. and it kind of gives the impression that this dude hasn't moved in forever. And I'm like, I mean, maybe he's not even really real. You know, like, I don't I think that's what (laughs) this movie is definitely getting into that, like, spiritual 70s vibe. I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that that kind of goes hand in hand with that 70s fantasy aesthetic. Yeah. And I think that is kind of what it's trying to evoke is that, like, this is a metaphor. Like, and so it kind of dispenses a little bit with those, like, plot necessities. Like, why is she here? Mm -hmm. Maybe this is kind of going a little bit off the rails in terms of storytelling. And it's like, we don't need to provide that reason because that's not the point. This movie is sort of a dream. And so things can just happen and you don't need to worry about it, Uh, which I can respect, honestly. But that's the only really... Like how I can kind of make sense of how she sort of just arrives there. And then he's like, hi, let me just shake off like a decade's worth of cobwebs. 
and give you some advice. Yeah, like we are seeing this whole story from her point of view. So some of this this magic and like the danger, these are all from her perspective. Because even like the real objects, like the tractor, that's just a mundane day at work for the farmer. But to her, it's like, you know, everything's at risk. So we could say the same thing might be true about some of the, like the uh the animal aspects like the the owl seems ancient even though it's not really. Yeah. Which I guess is, you know, good storytelling because I've complained in the past about wanting different points of views of characters that I don't feel like the story is offering up like the kids in the incredibles or whatever. Um but right. this one stays pretty true to like you really do feel like you're getting Mrs. Brisby's experience. And just her her sense of wonder at all times with uh, like these new experiences. Yeah, I think that's it helps with the she's going through all these magical ass places that look really cool. And she lingers there for a long time. And that's kind of a nice vehicle to see some of that stuff. Yeah, goddamn every I mean, flashing back to like, this is like the movie from the year of my birth. This all, All these little clips, like seeing the Christmas lights when she walks through the room where the lights are sparkling and then they take the, the lantern down underwater. It's, yes. God. Um, these are the reasons what you a like cool pick visual. up a pencil in the first place and want to, you're like, I want to draw something like that. I want to, I want to have this be a part of me and then put it back out into the world again. Yeah, the lantern thing in particular just feels so like it's one of those things where you're really like, wow, okay, the rats have done a lot like that. Technologically, there's a lot going on here. But because it's so cool, I'm like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't. It's a a point where I'm comfortable suspending my disbelief, I guess, Mm -hmm. because that's wild that they have this whole like a lantern elevator that drops below the water and then goes into a hole and then the water drains. (laughs) So they can like, it's just there's a lot going on there, but. It's really fascinating. And it also makes you really feel like, oh, these rats are really advanced. Yeah. And they have this seemingly whole underground network. It's kind of unclear where the rosebush takes you, but we see that there's like a grain storage room that they've labeled and stuff. And this must just all exist in some subterranean Yeah, there must be a cave system down there. Um, But it's cool. Like, they have a whole culture of architecture and stuff now, too, because we're in this room where they're having their congressional hearings or whatever about (laughs) their plan. And, I mean, it's like a full, like, this is like a lush, alien, sort of Baroque. I don't even know how to describe what's going on here. Like, Art Nouveau. There's so many forms and shapes in this room, but it's like someone built this. There's, you know, stones in the wall. It's like a tile floor with like a shiny, like inlaid design and all of this stuff. I mean, who's in charge of that? Like which rats were like in the the construction and like architectural design departments? And there's almost hinting at some some black magic here because on the floor is like a very pentagram looking form so there's also like this occult vibe going on i mean they're just throwing everything at the wall i think this team is just into all this shit and they're just putting it all in this movie right yeah because another thing that hasn't really come up yet 
Even the rat guard with the electric spear doesn't quite evoke this yet. But later we see rats get into like a full on sword battle. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, they're in like full like regalia. Like we finally meet Jenner, who's like the, the most antagonist antagonist in this movie. And he's in this just like elaborate, like purple cape and like get up. And it, it, it's just like none of this makes sense. In the context of the story, mm. but aesthetically, it kind of does make sense. And so, again, you just don't worry about it. You're like, wow, they had a whole, these rats built a whole society and it's a very specific type of medieval sort of like, I don't know, British history. And they have swords, like they forged swords and they do sword fights now. Like, why don't they have little guns? Like, <laughs> like what, you know, lasers, they had to yeah. make a choice to do that. Cause like, Presume, I mean, there's a farmer with like whatever, like people have guns at this point. So why aren't the rats like at that point? Are they progressing through every stage of development? Yeah, they're just like, like at a condensed pace through, through humanity. <laughs> yeah, like last year they were in the Bronze Age or something. And now they have like steel. It's just, I don't know. It it's It does feel like a lot of this was like Don Bluth and co were just like, what's cool? Yeah. What is, what do we like? And then we're going to put that in there. And then on the other side, story-wise, to me, this is where it gets a little weak because in the book, I believe the rats all decide it's time to leave the rose bush. It's time to like evolve beyond what humans have placed us as, as these like scavengers. Like we're smart enough. We have, we can, we can live on our own outside of humanity. We no longer need to be a thing in their shadow. But in the cartoon, Jenner, just wants to stay. That's that's his thing. Is like he he's yeah, mad. He it. wants to stay. The other rats are leaving, and he's like, "No, we're gonna stay." And you know what? Nicodemus is the problem. So all I got to do is kill him, and I'll drop Miss Brisby's house on him to kill him. It's so it's not like convoluted. It, it makes sense, but it's it's just a real reduction of what the book offered. Yeah, <laughs> this creative team. So that that's kind of a shame. Beautiful room. Like really stripping down of what this movie could be about in the same moment. Yeah, it feels like this movie doesn't have a theme. It really does to me. I, there are vague hints of themes, but like it just doesn't feel like it has one. It really does feel like these things are happening. They're cool. Like here's the bad guy, whatever. But like it is really interesting that the mad guy's entire motivation is I don't want to move. And then even like the rats wanting to leave and be independent is just sort of in passing what they want to do, you don't really get into why they want to do that so much. They sort of, they make like a passing comment about, you know, well, we don't want to steal anymore. And it doesn't feel like anything, which is like something that comes up in Ratatouille specifically is like the, like Remy is like, like wants to be like a person. And because of that, he thinks like stealing is bad and we're better than that, or we could be better than that. But that feels a lot more like they put a lot more thought into that for that character. And then in this, it's just sort of like, I guess that's why they want to move away. It doesn't even seem like they're worried about the farmer, like a little bit. But not like we got to get out of here as soon as possible to ensure that we don't die by the farmer. Like they don't seem that worried about it. Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, it's like they're dodging the sci-fi stuff that they could be really utilizing here. Like this like functioning society element and like the implications of intelligence and like what what that evokes in a personality once you establish these things. It, it just doesn't, you know, the movie's 83 minutes. 
these people are working around the clock. They're not getting paid that well. People are <laughs> living in the hallway. So it's like, I guess you just don't have time for that stuff, which is uh, too bad. Yeah, as much as we like, and I like like aesthetically all of the mysticism and the fantasy elements, I think the movie probably would have been a better movie if they didn't have them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, we want things to be about something. <laughs> so sue us. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what puts this in the culty category. Because I feel like to me, a lot of stuff that falls in the, oh yeah, cult classic they're not, they're just a vibe. They, they never, the creative team never really honed a focus on a theme and brought mm-hmm. it to that point. Like, for example, Spider-Verse could have been a cult movie if the story wasn't so strong because it's got yeah. a strong vibe, but it also has the other thing that makes it just like a masterpiece. Whereas this one has one side of it, but it's not, it never took the time to get that other piece. Therefore, you know, it, it can only take it so far as like a piece of like art. Yeah, I like that. I'd never thought about that. Not to have like a brief aside about cult classics, but I think that's a good point. Like cult classics do tend to be where there's some kind of seed of greatness in a thing, Mm -hmm. but it's just not like traditionally, because sometimes like legitimately just great movies kind of go overlooked, you know, and then they get a renaissance. But sometimes it really is just like, I can tell that there's like a powerful energy in this movie, has a great flavor, but it didn't come together. And we all know that but we should still appreciate it. Yeah. So that's more hoops to go through for like a like a general audience. <laughs> yeah, totally. But- it's less accessible. And for as a creative, I think one of the first things you said about this movie was like, when I make something, I put a little bit of this in that. And I think it's because this movie is leaving you wanting that you want to, you need to own it a little more because it hasn't said what it you want it to say. You almost have to take that and try to, give it a voice in other projects and something maybe. I don't know. I might be overthinking it, but to me, that's a little bit of what happens with this sort of culty stuff. Even just this aesthetic inspiration, this is kind of off the wall. So maybe cut this if it doesn't add anything. It's just a little <laughs> thing, but like, and I don't think it'll even mean anything to you necessarily because I doubt you've played this, but there's a video game that's really popular this year and it's really good called Hades. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you know, you're in hell and like Greek mythology and you're like fighting your way out of hell. And like, that's the story. But purely aesthetically they use that glimmering light shining just in the background as a background element so you'll just like be walking by and it's like flickering in the floor and it's like i just look at it and i'm like i need to talk to the person who did the background designs because i need to ask them if they put that in here because it's that it's the exact same aesthetic it's It's like the sparkling background of this and it just jumps out at me it's such a minor little thing but that's how like i look at these movies and like they always will have these that inspiration to me. Yes. That's like totally something that I would do in a similar situation. It's like, remember that little thing from Secret of Nim that has nothing to do with anything, but looks really good? Like, I don't know. For that reason, it's totally worth appreciating. Yeah, I totally get you. The lightning on the guard's uh, spear is the same way. Just that that style of drawing a lightning bolt. When I see that pop up in somebody's like little you know, project on Instagram, you do. You want to talk to people about it because you're like, oh, you have to, you must know this thing yeah. because it's, it you seems it? like it's so. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's just like yeah, it's just this touchstone of creativity. Yeah, we're all speaking the same language, or we're trying. Yeah. So then, uh, Mrs. Brisby finally meets Nicodemus, and she enters his real. Now, now we're in some real uh, alien H.R. Geiger type of looking shit like this looks like 
bio-organic yeah. stuff. <laughs> like kind of Yeah, and she gross. walks in Nicodemus's room and there's these weird little trees in there with like holy roots yeah. that look like there's like a hollow space in there. And he's like up on this dais that's made of all of these weird trees. And then they like curve up and enclose the top and... It's kind of gnarly in here. And the light pouring out of the door. I mean, I get, you know, I guess movies have always been about light, <laughs> light and shadow. So this, this is just what it, it's just a movie. It's just doing movie stuff nonstop. Just doing movie stuff. Like even the book glows for, I mean, which we know we, we did see the book at the beginning. So of course the book glows. That's not a surprise, but kind of also is a surprise that the book glows. It's probably too dark in there. So we put like a backlight in there so you can read it. It's like an e-ink mm-hmm. book. Like, how am I supposed to read it in my dark chamber with no windows? It does. It also opens by itself. Right. No big deal. Well, let's, like, shout out this part of the scene, though, again, because we did talk about it before, but it's Mm -hmm. when she's reading this book, and it's, you know, it opens to the page where it's like, your husband died because he was drugging the cat for us. But it's, like, a really tender... It's a nice character moment. Like, you can't help but I feel like they did a really good job with her as a character, and she's reading it, and she just has this moment where she's like, I never knew that that's what happened to him. And, like, that just feels real. And it just feels, like, kind of sweet and endearing in a way. And, like, give her that moment where, you know, you don't... There's no, like, scene at the beginning of the movie where she's sitting around being like, I really miss my husband, and, like, looking at a portrait of him or something. Mm -hmm. Like, that doesn't happen. So this is, like, the most emotional and, like, the most that she really talks about him. And you you just that little moment conveys so much about their relationship and like how much she's been feeling this whole time since he didn't. And it also says like she doesn't she's sort of like crying a little bit, but like not really, you know, she's welling up, like choking Mm -hmm. up and getting emotional. But it also makes her seem like a very strong character, because I have to imagine if my husband just never fucking came home and then I never found out what happened to him that my life would be over and I would be a complete mess and I'd probably be like sobbing and she takes it in stride in this way where you're just like god she's probably kind of a badass like she's very resilient she has these four kids she's got to take care of and like that's probably been weighing on her really heavily but she's still handling it in this very admirable way and all of this in like two seconds (laughs) yeah it's just a quick look at her face and yeah she gets she seems to get closure on that uh you know part of her life yeah it is all internal it's just her sort of like resolving these feelings and then she comes out of it stronger because then she's she reads the book and then she gets told the backstory of you know the the story of the rats of nim and how they were testing animals and we get these this great little montage of cute animals just suffering in cages and this i mean this is very 70s type of these are themes i mean there are themes in this movie even though we're saying like it's not about anything they're definitely taking the time to be (laughs) like okay animal cruelty sucks stop using chemicals and poisons. stop hurting people this is like post vietnam era like people are aware that there's weird shit in the air and like there's weird shit going on behind the scenes like nixon and all this stuff right so there, there is that flavor in it because the way they choose to enter into this backstory is, you know, framed by this whole like government, you know, it's the government's fault. Yeah, shadowy <laughs> institution. Like so it's, you know. And that whole sequence is really wild too. And even as mm-hmm. a kid, I remember watching it and being like, this is dark. <laughs> yeah, because the, the mice get out and then they're just sucked down the air duct. <laughs> yeah, I still find that kind of horrifying. <laughs> 
There's a couple parts about this scene there. So they show this whole sequence where the rats are getting injected, but it doesn't, it all kind of bothers me to be honest, especially because mm-hmm. I like love my rats and like, I don't know, seeing animals like that in her- pain, even if it's in a cartoon movie, it's like kind of bums me out, whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's a part where there's like one specific rat and it's very like hunched over and in pain. And there's this like overlay of this like red spot on it. That's just like really fucking visceral and st- Duck with me. Even as a kid, I was like, God damn, like, I don't quite understand what's going on because I'm a child. But like, that looks really horrifying to me. And it's like a little it's upsetting to watch. Like, I feel the pain of the animal in this moment. And then, yeah, there's just the briefest aside where it's like the rats, the mice all busted out. But uh, the mice were small. So they got sucked into the vent and died. And it's just like, it's kind of brutal. You see them get kind of sucked away. You don't see them die. But like, yeah, they get sucked into the black void. Yeah, it's horrifying. I still don't like it. I don't like that part. No, it's... <laughs> I mean, I do, but, you know, like, it's it feels emotionally exactly how they hoped it would feel, probably, when they were making it. Yeah, and in a way, it is kind of what we were just asking for. This whole little scene, it it's using light to show, uh, to convey, like, the transformation. It's using, like, the glows and all this cool effects that we've watched be magical through the movie but it's it's using them different here because it's like the the rats are having a chemical reaction to something they come out of that different they can read we see the signage that they're reading they're like unlocking doors and then you know their companions are lost down a duct and when that happens there's no effect it's just a black void and like just a, a it's like very literal yeah, it's very matter of fact. Yeah, and that's what we were just looking for. So maybe this is the the best moment of the movie where they just sort of jump back from the magical mysticism and show this escapes plan go yeah. wrong. And it's just so much more effective. Like it, it is hard to watch. And it's probably why I don't go back to this movie very often because you know at about 50 minutes in, you're just going to get this like, you know, awful scene. <laughs> yeah, it's it like it's painful. Mm-hmm. And it is really well done. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's it's being voice like we're getting a lot at once, right? We're getting the voiceover and we're seeing something and both are complementing each other. And uh it's yeah, it's it's pretty perfect storytelling, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like a little microcosm of but that's why I like don't want to say that in like sliding the rest of the movie, but that part just feels so tight. Like you you know exactly what's happening and it's also I don't know, in a weird way I wanna I guess it just goes back to what I said earlier about how if you took out the fantastical elements of this movie, it'd probably be stronger. Like that part has such a strong appeal to me. I would like to have spent more time on it, Mm -hmm. but somebody will just have to let me direct the reboot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, there's actually the book. There's a trilogy of books, I think. I haven't read the other ones, but uh, there is more to Nim. That is it. Well, they did make a direct to TV sequel as well. Uh, I like 20 years later, I think. Like, I don't know. Yeah, without Don Bluth's consent, it's called like... Uh, yeah, and no involvement. The Adventures of Timmy or something, and he's standing like Sonic the Hedgehog. He's got like a real bad <laughs> attitude. It, it just looks like it has nothing to do with this movie. <laughs> yeah, I think it's safe to say we will not be including it in our podcast. Or our lives. <laughs> no. No, thank you. So if you have... Uh, a problem with the coherency of this movie, I think it's all rooted in this amulet, which where does it come mm-hmm. from? It's just basically the force from Star Wars, kind of. <laughs> 
and it's got an inscription like Jonathan, did he make it? Like, what is this stone? Yeah, no, you're barking up the exact right tree, which is like, yeah, you don't know. It doesn't say it's just a magical crystal that they never explain. And it does give force magic, but briefly. And then she gives it away at the end. A spoiler for the end, but it's like a gift from Jonathan, her dead husband. And she, as she, she's like tearfully, like, I'll treasure it forever. Like, thank you so much. Yeah. And then at the end, she's like, I gave it to Justin. Yeah, <laughs> like, Justin what? didn't deserve it. Why? That wasn't for him. It was for you. That but was a, okay. It's like the embodiment. Cool. Of, it's all that's left of your husband, apparently. And it's now just a, a trinket to, to share with a friend who you may or may not ever see <sighs> again. Rough stuff. You could have just given it to Jeremy because he's so horny for it because he wants it to like use it to get a GF. Yeah. And she like won't give it to him, which is kind of funny, but whatever. Anyway. <laughs> So she has that. Yeah, she's got that. And then Jenner finally, uh, you know, divulges his plan to just murder classic villain. Now, okay. here, I- here's another classic villain thing we see in the 80s. The, the, the combination of neon green and purple as the identifying color scheme of the fantasy villain. Like, do you pick up on that pattern? Like, do you, do you see those two colors and think of bad guy in the 80s? Uh- I mean, I think of like Barney the dinosaur. Oh, do you? Okay. Primarily. But like, I do, I know exactly what you mean. And maybe it was just because in the 80s, I feel like people were not afraid to use color in very fun ways. It's like secondary <laughs> colors are the bad guys, is basically. Yeah, but purple certainly. I mean, that's very like a Maleficent type yeah, right. vibe as well. Yeah, because she's green. Yeah, that's true. I guess it goes, I guess that's the source of it because the, the dragon breathes green fire and it has, and, and it's she so has purple. Cool. Ah. It looks awesome. I just want to shout out, well, actually, I wanted to do this earlier and I totally forgot to, but like Jenner's character design, I actually really like. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Like I'm very picky, as I mentioned about Don Blue's character designs. And I think a lot of them are like too much and I don't always love his aesthetic, but like he does villains pretty well, I think. And he just looks like Satan. Like you could tell that he was like, mm, Satan when he like drew Jenner. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I could I see think that totally. I might be basing that solely off of his pointy like beard. Yeah. But like, I don't know. He also looks kind of like a cartoon wolf, like instead of a rat. Like a lot of the rats don't look very ratty, but he's got like tiny little ears and he's just, I don't know. He just looks like a hairy little villain. But I think the animation here is really good. It's got that classic Don Bluth excessive energy. But he's like, we're going to crush Nicodemus's bones. And his eyes are like <laughs> massive and like really shiny and his teeth are huge. Yeah. But I'm just like, for if you want to get like really hammy with a villain, this is working for me. And I think his voice is also really good. Was his name like Paul Shinar is the guy that voiced him. And I understand that he had a very like Shakespearean like stage theater background and that feels like it was perfect casting for this character yeah this is the i mean this is the scene you write a villain for and um they're they're kind of in shadow and the backgrounds are lighter than they are which i think works really well and makes the eyes pop and on the point of the character designs this a lot of the rats and other animals recall disney's robin hood which i think is where you're we're getting this sort of like oh they're kind of like rats but they also look you know, lupine a little bit too, which, you know, and, and the medieval, yeah, the medieval element to that. And you get like the garb. Yeah. yeah. You get the Robin Hoodness of it. 
And I think they're like cheek fluffs. That's a very yeah. like like Disney <laughs> thing. And like rats don't really have that necessarily on them, but it does like all the I don't know, just sticks out a little bit. Rat ears too are big and they don't. I'm I'm a little intrigued by the fact that they made their ears so small. Right. I think they're they're playing fast and loose with um like the proportions of all the stuff, like in the way they were talking about like designing Miss Frisbee and just shifting the anatomy around until it looks like what you want it to feel like, which I guess is what animation's all about anyway. Sounds crazy to me. <laughs> what are you doing? Okay. No, all right. So now I do wanna Yeah. Sorry, they're in this barge. I feel like that's where you're going anyway, but like there's a really nice little moment where a snake swims by in the water and there's like skulls and stuff in the walls. Like maybe even rat skulls as they're like going by and there's a rat skull that looks like it's on a pike or something. And it just, I don't know, just another thing where it's like this world raises a lot of questions in a very cool way. Right. Like, is this the, is this how they came here in the first place or is this their way to go back and forth like it, it seems to be well traversed yeah to the point where their skull their skulls and whatnot and vehicles yeah they got a whole little boat system set up it's very kind of like uh you know journey to the underworld type of like we're getting into a little bit of like greek myth yeah, a little stick. And maybe that is. I mean, they're going, she's going to confront the cat. They're, she's ship, they're shipping her off to go poison the cat with sleep drugs or whatever. Mm-hmm. So maybe it is supposed to have a little bit of that, you know, boating you down to your fate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's kind of, and she makes the choice too, right? She's she's learned about her husband. She's learned how brave he, he was. And she seems to want to embody a bit of that anyway, because- just or yeah, Justin is like, no, you don't have to do it. She's like, I want to do it. And Nicodemus is like, well, she wants to do it. So and you're like, all right. <laughs> but I I found a new love for the shot where Justin and Mrs. Brisby are coming up underneath the house, and there's mm. some old like uh, there's like a wine like wine bottles like stacked in the perfect way where they can like get to the little mouse hole and the lights shining right through there. It's just like, you didn't have to do this. You could have cut right to the point where she's coming through, but they just set up this like little epic entrance for her to enter into her stage of the adventure where she's actually going to like encounter danger at another level. Like this seems a lot more dangerous than meeting the owl or going into the rose bush or anything. Yeah. She's like shaking in terror. Yeah, and they strip her of like her her cloak. Like she just looks like a normal mouse all of a sudden, which is her most it's she's at her most vulnerable. Oh, I feel bad for her. I know you should. It's like as soon as that cloak comes <laughs> off, it's she just looks so pathetic. Like she she has nothing. <laughs> she's a little naked mouse. Yeah, and it must be I the way that she's animating like shaking in fear is really well done. Mm-hmm. That's not something you see a lot. Honestly, even when characters go into like a, a fear situation that you don't have those like adrenaline shakes. Yeah. Like, I don't feel like a lot of movies do that. Yeah, they really took the time to embody her um, because all, all these other characters, they come and go in her story. Like Justin, he doesn't really enter in to like well into half the movie. Shelly meets Nicodemus for a moment. Mr. Ages comes and goes. You're really just with Mrs. Brisby this whole time. She doesn't really have a sidekick or anything. So it's... It's great that they're just giving her so much attention. They're giving her um, her like emotional states are are very dynamic. Yeah, it's all about her and the way that it should be. Now, my least favorite setting that seems to jump out a little bit, and I guess this is kind of intentional. When she goes into the kitchen, 
it looks like we're in like a Looney Tunes cartoon all of a sudden. Yeah, <laughs> like I totally very, like the checkerboard floor. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it's just like it's it probably is hard for them to fit this scene into the aesthetic of the movie, which is all a natural setting. So then they can get really weird with it. But for this one, you have to be trying to evoke a specific time period in a specific place. So you can't have the kitchen look like a like a, like a yes album cover. You right. can't. It needs to look like a kitchen. But yeah. Yeah, like, well, the tiles are, like, purple and orange. Yeah, some strange design choices. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they just, they got ambitious with their kitchen when they moved in. Yeah, they have, like, a even the food bowl, like, has dragon written on it. Like, the cat's name is written on these big letters. And I'm just, like, that's something I've only seen in cartoons. I don't think I've ever had a pet where I had a A corresponding (laughs) labeled bowl for them. So maybe that is normal, but. It's surprising that the humans have named the cat dragon because it always seemed like that was a name given to them by the animals that saw it as a dragon. Yeah, now how do they know that? I guess all animals can speak and understand actual human English. Yeah. The rats regardless of your special. ability to read it, like I don't know. Cuz yeah, Miss Frisbee always knew, or maybe she knew cuz Jonathan knew. Who knows? We won't know. We'll never um, know. But long story short, she gets captured. Mhm. And imprisoned. Which is kind of interesting. I guess the the boy of the family was like a wild mouse. I will keep it as a pet. <laughs> I'll throw <laughs> up, kind of... I'll throw out my bird and we'll keep the mouse <laughs> in its cage. Yeah, very convenient <laughs> that they had a bird cage on hand. What is funny is this strikes me as very strange now. But when I was a kid, I absolutely would have pulled this move and tried yeah. to keep the wild mouse as a pet. So mm. maybe I'm not the only one. Like maybe that's a relatable situation. But it does seem like a strange choice for a for a farmer's son to want to keep this animal. So as we get into this last act, there's there's some great set pieces that, I hate to say it, but I think they just catch me a little more than the magic of the rosebush and some of the earlier stuff. I, I love the escape from the birdcage, the way she figures out how to push the water dish. Yeah. Because I had a birdcage just like this, and that's how you would have had to deal with it. I I think I just love – I love the mechanic of that. I love the struggle and the danger of it. And then not to j- jump right to the end, but th- to me, this leans into the pulley system that they build to move the house. Suddenly, this movie is all about like the logical systems, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas it's been about magic and you know hero's journey stuff but suddenly it's raining it's muddy we've got uh wheels gears and uh water dishes it's it's like the physics of everything have just kind of shifted to and they up the ante and i'm like more invested yeah i think in this in this little stretch here yeah it's gritty it's real real stuff is happening mm-hmm. here and to go back to the birdcage thing so again, I didn't get a chance to reread through the book, but I uh, understand that in the book, Justin actually saves her in the birdcage. And I love that they just cut that out totally. And she gets out herself and she even gets hurt in a way that just feels they show blood a couple times yeah. in this movie. And it's like a little <laughs> surprising. It's very fleeting. There's also a part where Jenner kills his little sidekick guy who like Weenus is out at the last minute and doesn't want to be complicit in the plot to murder their leader. And so of course he kills him. And for a moment, like a flash of a moment, there's blood on Jenner's sword, which immediately is gone in the next shot. But I was like, even just that little hint of it was like, nice like it makes it feel real like make that feel real 
And uh, when she's escaping out of the birdcage, she's twisting off the tie. Mm-hmm. There's like a, I don't know, like a zip tie or something, like a little like paperclip or something that's twisted around the cage door to keep it shut, which also I love is like a nice parallel to the rats opening the latch to get out of their NIM cages. Like, I, would she have thought to do that before she'd heard that story? I don't know. I mean, the mechanics of the world is a little <laughs> muddy in this regard, so maybe she would have. But it's a nice parallel. Like, maybe she learned that from her husband, you know, from his backstory. Um, but she gets cut on it, and then she goes to put the blood in the water, and then that's when she realizes, like, oh, I if I push this water thing out, I can escape. And that's just a cool, like, it feels like you're really seeing her struggle through something and problem solve. And it's really nice that she gets to do it on her own. Like, I don't want to sit here and watch Justin pop up and be like, hello, like, let me open this cage for you. Like, you know, a rescue situation. A lot of this movie really actually is about her having agency and handling her own problems. So that was just a nice scene. Makes her feel strong. There's a lot of times in this movie where she does feel like a strong character. And as a kid watching this, you can, you can, you have objects like this in your house, and you can kind of relate to her better than when she's outside, because you know you don't live outside or you don't live underground in a, the bottom of a. Not usually. Yeah, unless you're like a Morlock or something like that. <laughs> but the, <laughs> for the, one month out of the year, I'm a Morlock. <laughs> the familiarity of the rat of the birdcage is it's just like a great way to let you connect with this character yeah and it does it makes you feel like kind of a shit for being a person right (laughs) like maybe maybe we shouldn't cage wild animals in this way i don't know yeah i think that's part of uh, the messaging of the author and like maybe the filmmakers working on this it's like think of the things that we make isn't that kind of cruel and weird I'm going to have to go to have a conversation with my rats when this movie is over. <laughs> We're done talking about it. I feel about these bars here. Do you want to move? <laughs> uh, so that pretty much brings us to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're we're in the last moments. Of course, the end of a movie needs some rain and stormy weather because that just always lets you know. <laughs> yeah. How are we supposed to know that we're at the climax if the environment isn't? emulating that yeah so we get a pretty good sword fight here we do jenner has a cool sword too Mm -hmm. jenner has a cool bad guy sword it's like that wavy blade uh i don't know i love a villain with a sense of style so i'm glad that they showed him having a little bit of flair that also is very red wall to me yeah so the, the the contraption goes awry they they aren't able to pull the cinder block to the lee of the stone. Is that what they say? Is it the lee? It is to the lee of the stone. Yeah. That's just they say it like four or five times so you really remember it, which is funny because to a kid, it means nothing. No. <laughs> Even to an adult, it doesn't really mean anything, but I guess it sounds mysterious. So they're like, yeah. Redwall came out in 1986, by the way. So it definitely stole the wavy sword idea from this movie. Oh, come on, Redwall. Get your own sword. Get it together, Brian. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> so, okay. So they, they fail Mrs. Brisby. Now, I love mud. And this is a real era of mud. This movie, this last scene, and I don't know if they could have seen it in time, but in Empire Strikes Back, the first movie I ever saw that my mom brought me to the theater, if you remember five hours ago when we started this episode, and I mentioned mm-hmm. that. When you were just born, so, right out of the womb, and then she immediately drove to the theater from the hospital. So you get peak Star Wars mysticism when 
Yoda, tiny little Yoda pulls Luke's, basically Luke's home, which is the X-Wing, the closest thing he has to a home anymore. He pulls it out of the swampy mud and it's, it's like the music soars and it's just like, it's magical to the, to the young viewer. This, I wonder if it's, it's just in the air, like pulling things out of mud with magic and having it be like the truth of the character. Like they, they spend so much time in this beautiful shot of, you know, Jenner, Jenner's defeated by his old friend who gets, he throws a knife across and kills him. The rats fail. And then Miss Brisby gets her stone, her amulet, and she just turns into the dark Phoenix and starts to pull the, her cinder Truly. block with her family inside out of the mud and put it at the lee of the stone. And it, it's like Fantasia level quality here to me. Like the way the mud is bubbling and the lights are flashing and it looks like lava. Yeah. Uh, this is my friend just illuminated this, uh, term in anime. Uh, I believe it's called Sakuga. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't watch a ton of anime, so I'm unfamiliar with this, but apparently it's literally, it's a word that specifically references a particular scene in anime that is of notable higher quality than the rest. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this is the Sakuga sequence. Shout out to Emily Strickler, my friend, for bringing this to my attention. This is where the budget went. Like, yeah. you can tell that they were like, <laughs> all right, guys, start shelling out for the mud scene that... We're going to need you to mortgage your homes because, like, we need a big lighting sequence. This is Sakuga. Here it is. And it really, it, it like, I had forgotten how turnt it kind of gets at this point where, like, she is just, like, all aglow on fire. Honestly, too, this part is scary as hell. I found it absolutely terrifying. When the block is sinking, like, pre-she rescues it, the panic that everyone is going through and the kids are inside and, like... This evoked an anxiety in me as a child. Yeah, it's claustrophobic when um the the girl, I don't remember her name, but she she has to dive under the bed and the candle f- flies down and hits it and explodes and luckily like the the dishwash water n- knocks out the flame, but yeah, it's it's great. Those kids are in fucking danger. Yeah, the room is like filling up with who left the kids in there, honestly, while they were moving this. That was not a good call. You should have evacuated the children and Auntie Shrew should have been there at Timothy's bedside. But like, don't leave the kids in here when you're like carrying this thing like up off the ground. What y'all doing? (laughs) Child abuse. But they are they're in here and the mud is rising and they're like up on the table and the baby like falls in the mud. It's just like, no, no, like it just doesn't feel good. And on the outside, Miss Brisby is basically, I don't know, it's like biblical stuff here. Like this is like the voice of God flashing from behind her. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a lot. But that's her, I guess the whole deal with the amulet was supposed to be an externalization of her like self-possession and her own confidence, which I love the idea of. Yeah. But for all the reasons that we've gone through it, you know, it's a little weird and it doesn't exactly work because the amulet is so much of like a question mark in terms of just the plot. Um, but the intentions are good or something, right? It's like we kind of excuse it for what it's trying to say. I think that's sort of, yeah, why I kind of come back to always being like, well, I mean, there's so many reasons why I like this movie regardless, but... I like her as a character because, I don't know, you do, you just don't see it a lot. Mm-hmm. You just don't. Normally, this is like a Harry Potter situation. Yeah. And it's like Harry Potter, the boy wonder who is like winning the day or whatever. Again, like how many times does the 
the widowed mom of four get to be the one with the awesome like save the day magic powers. Not enough, let me tell you. <laughs> and then it it's it's just quite sweet after she does she does the task and then she lays down like she's exhausted. Like it's just this nice tender she's she's just had she's done all she could and like luckily yeah, like, it worked it. out, but <laughs> Brisby out. <laughs> yeah. She and she's so small too. Like it's it's like a long shot. The rats are all like towering over her and she's just this this tiny little mouse. <laughs> yeah, I got mad respect. Yeah, a true hero, I'd say. Mrs. Brisby. And then we didn't need him. <laughs> and didn't th- need the rats. <laughs> no, yeah, we kind of didn't. We she could have just got that amulet. Like he could have mailed it to her. <laughs> yeah, what the hell, Nicodemus? I don't know. The spirit of the forest or whatever works in mysterious ways. I guess. Yeah, true. So now we get basically the epilogue where you know now now it looks like we're in Bambi. <laughs> Everything's bright. The the flowers are, you know, we're we're in. Uh, this this feels a little more like we're getting a Disney ending. Yeah, it's very soft. After struggling through the blueness of it all. <laughs> yeah, like Timothy is up and about and she, he can't come out yet, but he's like, I'm alive. He's quarantined, yeah. It's kind of a little, <laughs> oh my God, what's the boy from Christmas Carol? Tiny Tim. Oh, yeah, totally. A little bit of that. Yeah, like, he's... and after all, he was fine. <laughs> he got through it okay. Yeah. And of course, Jeremy, like resident chuckle fuck of this movie shows up and is just like, hey, I got all that string you wanted. Wait, what? Yeah. You're already done? You don't need me at all? <laughs> you did the rest of the movie without me? And then he gets a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, good for him. She's got a very 80s haircut. You could almost like see the Aquanet. That is there. what's so... I like. Even Jeremy has that kind of like bouffant. <laughs> yeah like hairstyle somehow and then yeah the lady has like an 80s ponytail <laughs> situation i don't know you can't hate that yeah and i i do love this last you know i mean fuck jeremy in some ways but i i kind of love the last bit of watching them fly off together and the the yarn the string just kind of flapping yeah. In the wind there and then freezing and switching to I'm a real sucker for like the oh suddenly we're back in the book <laughs> move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it's like that we freeze frame and then now we kind of get to see some cool concept art and little like vignette style from from old old children's books. I love that they have they have this whole thing at the end and then um, there's sort of like a frame style of the art in the credits, and then it transitions to these like full drawings mm-hmm. of presumably concept art. I mean, maybe they were made for the credits. I don't know, but like, it's nice to see that. Yeah, it made me realize actually how like little production art I've seen of this movie. I think I've been able to track some down because I got to gram some of that for y'all. Yeah, I got. I haven't seen it yet either. I'm excited. Yeah, hopefully I can dig up more. I just I found a couple leads on the internet, but um. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of Pixar or Disney stuff out there and not so much for these. So Yeah, less cool documented. I these sort of things, it's it's just one of those things that these sort of animators, these sort of creative people that end up in this industry, they really know what a kid is going to kind of want out of these things. Sometimes they get it wrong, but sometimes they get it right. And just think of it think of how you feel when you read finish a book that you really enjoy and you flash back through and you start looking at like just the pictures or you jump ahead and you just start looking at the pages with illustrations to me that's what this ending bit feels like you're kind of re- getting a chance to relive the book without having to like go back and watch it 
Yeah. It's just like a nice little gesture to the audience, I think. Well, that's all for now. Join us next week as we go down the rabbit hole of our first animated short, Pixar's Burrow. Very cute. Yeah, very cute. Very short. We'll see uh, what we arrive at, how we manage to talk for three hours about two minutes of animation. We can do it and we will do it. Yeah, it's our longest episode yet. (laughs) So while you're uh, anxiously waiting that, you can check out our episode archive and other stuff about us on cartoonfeelings.com. Please tweet at us or join us on Instagram. Both of those are at Feeling Cartoons. And if you have any cartoon feelings of your own or thoughts or questions, please contact us by writing us at cartoonfeelingspodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you're liking the podcast, we would be super grateful if you would consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or leave us a review or both. And uh, if you know any other cartoon people out there, uh, we'd love it if you'd share them. That would really help us out a lot. Yeah, tell your friends. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>